Hi there, this is Daniel from Deep Dark Designs, and you are listening to Legends of Tabletop. Welcome to the Legends of Tabletop podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, so how's it going? How, how you been? It's been a long time. It has. It's been far too long. Uh, I'm good. I'm very good. Yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm hanging in, doing well. We're uh, I'm glad to have you on. I know we uh, you know we keep in touch, uh, obviously like off the air kind of thing, but it, it has definitely been far too long since you've been on the show. Yeah, it does seem like a, uh, a rare treat. I was looking at the other day. I think. I'm pretty sure it was the summer of 2016, so it's just coming up to three years now. Holy crap. <laughs> I know it doesn't seem it, but it must have been, yeah. Wow, Incredible. that's crazy. Although you were on for the um, uh, mm, the, the Burning Games, the uh, the AP yeah. we did for uh, Dragons Conquer America. Yeah. Yeah, that was a giggle. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I want to play that again, actually. I did, I did yeah. enjoy that. Yeah, yeah I, w- I would definitely do that again. We got Kevin. Kevin ran that for us, right? We didn't get Kevin on the stick and get him to run another game for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be game. Cool. Well, you're on because you guys actually have something going on Kickstarter right now. Uh, Thunder of the Thorn just dropped today, actually. So, uh, should you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, it's uh, an adventure for fifth edition. Um, it's just hit Kickstarter in the last hour. So uh, instead of watching like a hawk, which is what I'm doing otherwise, I'll be <laughs> spending my evening with you while my colleague does the uh, the uh, the obsessing over the the performance. Nice. Um, yeah, it's a first to fifth level adventure, D and D fifth edition, and it's kind of it's a setting guide as well. So it's it's quite expansive for uh, for what you'd expect for five levels. It's about 130 pages. We've got 128 at the moment, and that gives us just enough room to kind of go into the um the woodlands environment you set in and a, a hub town there as well so you've got a lot of materials to really to expand upon just this straightforward linear adventure um the only thing we have done here which is a little bit unusual is we've made it all very adventure specific so you're not going to get a um a hub and a region that you can very very easily and seamlessly pull out for use elsewhere because you're going to get a much more focused uh, unique experience you could adapt and rewrite. There's plenty of locations, plenty of materials, but uh, this adventure really, um, really commits to the bit. That's very much the case. Cool. And uh, and this is actually a short campaign, right? You're not doing a full 30 day Kickstarter. This is like about two weeks. Yep, just over two weeks. We're doing 16 to 17 days because uh, it starts late and ends early, so it's a little under 17 days. But um, the last two we ran were longer, and that was okay. But it, it's tricky, especially when you're a smaller company doing like a role play book rather than, you know, something like a video game or something with huge, huge budgets to sustain constant updates, constant momentum, constant noise and buzz. And I, I find that our industry with tabletop role playing goes the same way as the board game industry. We're just a couple of years behind. So when you're seeing board games starting to move to shorter and shorter campaigns, much more focused and uh, like a much shorter, hotter burn. I was like, let's give that a go. Let's let's see how that works out for us. 
Um, fingers crossed, it's the first time we're trying it, so we're, uh, we're looking forward. It might, it might not be the best decision in the world, but all signs are good so far. Sure, and and for the most part, right? I mean, what you see in the, in the trend of Kickstarters is you get that, you know, initial wave of backing in the first, you know, three days to a week, then you get two weeks of sort of a wall, and then it kind of comes back around as people get their reminds and stuff again. So, so two yeah. weeks should be, you know, I mean, a pretty nice, it should keep everything pretty much focused on it, right? Yeah, yeah. It lets us keep the momentum up. And the other side, which is like you say, is those longer campaigns, what you tend to see is a huge burn at the beginning, this huge burn at the end. And that bit in the middle is where other Kickstarters launch and sort of threaten your audience because there's a temptation to go over and see what other people are doing. But also I kind of think that like Kickstarter is such a great platform and I wish more people using it in short bursts because you almost want to take your time in the spotlight and then vacate shit somebody else can come in. I think you know we might we might do really well and have quite a large campaign. And if we were if we're gonna do that over X number of weeks or even months, if you go to like a sixty day campaign, well, is there another up and coming publisher whose its first project is whose attention we're stealing? Um, so I kind of look at like there's a, there's a huge one at the moment, Critical Role, who are doing fantastically well, and there's only kind of a tangential crossover with say tabletop role playing because it's it's a podcast, it's it's more of an animated show they're doing. Sure. It's more entertainment than anything else. But it's a 45-day campaign. And you wonder how many more backers they'll go in 45 days versus how much attention they're shifting away from smaller publishers. And, of course, it absolutely works for some campaigns, doesn't work for others. I, what I love about Kickstarter is everyone on this platform, because it's so new, is trying out different things. It's still normalizing. We're still experimenting, still seeing what works. And that's a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, short campaign, short and focused. Sure. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of feel like that speaks to the community aspect that we, that we feel in, in podcasting and role playing and also. So we always talk about community. So like mm-hmm. having that sort of a, of a take on it, you know, really kind of feeds back into like, cool, I'm going to, you know, we're not looking for, you know, a million dollars. You know, you guys are looking for 2000 pounds. It's a relatively small uh, funding yeah, goal yeah. And, and something that should be easily done in, you know, 16 days. And it's like, cool, we're able to, to print and get a book out like and that's that's yeah. the you know the impetus behind it it's not just to mm-hmm. kind of like hang out and you know drag and drag and drag for 30 days yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think that's the thing is it the creative energy we would spend on sustaining the kickstarter would be better spent on the product so by shortening that campaign we can get the product out and it's not only that we've got we've got lots of ideas we'd like to do but there's a certain component of if you spend say I think Kickstarter's limits between 60 and 75 days. It's somewhere there for the, for the maximum length of the campaign. And if you spend two months on Kickstarter, then you fulfill a month later or two months later and you're back on Kickstarter. Well, you could spend half a year with live campaigns. And not only is that so much energy away from anything else you're doing, but it's it's going to become burnout for your community. Yep. And I look at what I, I think it's Frog God Games um, from the top of my head, but I could be mistaken. But what they do is they alternate their campaigns back and forth between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, tapping into different audiences, not fatiguing any one platform. And I think they've experimented with short, short Kickstarter, some, some shorter ones themselves. And I look at that and think, well, that's great. They're not hogging the platform, but they're able to do what they want to do that works for their audience. And, and I, I've got to say I'm a big fan of it. It seems to work for us, and I'm hoping it works for the backers and for the people in it. I'm hoping people get a chance to kind of discover us. Um, but one of the things we're doing this campaign for the first time is we're going to use backer kit at the end, which lets us create the opportunity for people to come in after the campaign 
and back us if they've missed out. But what that does is it lets us continue to keep the doors open to people who want to back us without hogging the spotlight. It gets us off Kickstarter, but it still lets us reach out to our audience and reach out to, you know, their gaming friends, their gaming circles and talk about, you know, the stretch goals and a lot of the things we've added to the project. But it means we're off of Kickstarter and out out of, you know, the, you know, hogging that platform, which is really one of the best marketing opportunities you get as a small publisher. You know, you couldn't right. you couldn't throw the money at, at Facebook ads or Twitter ads or Instagram ads to get the same visibility Kickstarter provides. So we we don't particularly care to hog it. If we can get in, get our project funded, and then move on, brilliant. We're we're very happy with that. And does backer kit stay open through funding? So you guys are theoretically going to uh, ship product in July, which is a pretty short window, right? Like that, you know, as, mm. as coming in as a backer, like oh shit, it's march and i'm gonna get this you know before the summer's over that's awesome uh but does backer kit stay open through that um completion and 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 delivery of product that's the intention um at the moment what may happen is it's not inconceivable that we would do a pretty sure offset print run if we got enough physical print sales and at a certain point we have to cut off in order to fulfill that Sure. Whereas if we're not on that kind of level of, of the number of physical books to be fulfilled, then we'll probably have that open all the way up until fulfillment because um, we'll run it POD and we can ship until like the day, even beyond that, it'll go in general sales shortly thereafter. But if we realize that, oh, okay, we've got enough volume here to, to throw it at a print run, then it makes more sense to cut it a little bit sooner and get that print run mobilized, which we'd like to do um, because even a relatively small print run. I see a lot of chatter online about print runs need to be very, very large. There seems to be this figure in most publishers' minds that you're sort of looking at thousands of copies and up. But a lot of a lot of printers will do much smaller print runs than that. And it, POD is quite expensive. So comparing offset to POD, you're looking at you know 500 to 1,000 copies, depending what your um depending what your your bank rolling and what it is you're trying to put out there. Um, but the biggest thing about offset printing is that even if we made a loss on that and we, we, we end up massively running over budget, this isn't the only project we want to do. We've got lots of things in the pipeline. And we would rather spend a little bit more money on the fulfillment to go to a much, much higher quality product. I mean, print runs are fantastic for that. You're suddenly looking at thicker, glossier paper, better covers, better everything. Um, and the color recreation is phenomenal. We've, we've upgraded, um, spent a lot of time going through upgrading the... The prints we do now on on uh, drive for objects pod and they're as good as we've got and we're getting to the point now with the color recreation we're scraping the limits of what you can actually accomplish in pod um but there is an upper limit to that it's it's very different game to offsetting um so we're looking at okay what's the smallest figure here we can get into a print run um without you know uh spending what we earn 10 times over sort of right, right. <laughs> Well, it comes down to price per unit, right? I mean, that's the thing with printing. People are talking about all you need to do, you know, a thousand books or two thousand books because it drives the overall unit price down. But yeah. like you said, where's where's the cutoff? Where, you know, mm. okay, cool, we've got it at a really good price, but if we don't sell these other thousand copies, well, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things as well is for us is if we get to a a pretty good level of copy, something where we we you know just shy of it being viable within a hundred or two hundred copies we'll probably print the extras and then just have them sitting in a fulfillment center somewhere because the benefit of upgrading the product and making it better for the backers is the, is the goodwill. 
is the quality of the product. Sure. And then it's like, well, great. If even if it's even if we've made the loss there and we, we don't even break even on the Kickstarter, well, the next you know, 100, 200 books that we want to send out to influencers, to reviewers, to people to give away, well, that all becomes money we make back in the next project or the project after that. Um, but, of course, there, there needs to be a, like a, a balancing act to that. You can't just, you know, order 2,000 copies when you can't sell them because the drop-off on, on post-Kickstarter sales is a challenge. Um, right. And because we do so much traffic on, on DriveThruRPG, it's our big platform, um, and that wouldn't sell uh, copies we've already got in, in hand. It would only sell their, their POD option. There's a real sweet spot there of going like, okay, well, at a certain point, the rest of the sales we make up are likely to be a platform that isn't even going to use the, the ones we paid for. But um, I could see us, if we had the option to, um, offering for the people who really want it on that platform, the POD option there, and then also offering an option direct through us. And Amazon's got some, um, they've got like their Amazon pilot scheme, where anything you create through a Kickstarter, um, they will push and market and, and really drive you out there, and you can send straight to them for Amazon Prime fulfillment and stuff like that. So there's there's lots of options open. That's the great thing about Kickstarter these days, and Indiegogo, and all these exciting new platforms. Is suddenly you've got even as because we're not a big publisher, we aren't. We're small, but you've got all the options open to you. That if you went back ten years, um, I, I know somebody, uh, a friend of mine who published their own um, RPG game a little over a decade ago. And they began by ordering about 2,000 copies from uh, from China. And they're still, the majority of them, sitting in his front room or his garage, I forget where. And he goes to conventions, he shifts them. It, it, he does he does shift them. But it's, it's hard because you used to have to organize this entire print run yourself, mobilize all the sales yourself. There was nothing in place. And it's great the way the industry's opened up to people. Oh, you just froze up. <laughs> Come back to me, Dan. Come back. And it wasn't me. <laughs> I'll try my best. But yeah, I think I think it's really great the way opportunities have opened up now, where even if you're a small publisher, I've seen, and I regularly see on Kickstarter, looking for a couple, somebody wants, I don't know, 20 stat blocks or something, but they're now able to do that. And just because Kickstarter has so few products in any given genre, any given you know um, niche at any one time, you get that spotlight, you get that chance in the limelight, which goes back to what I was saying before is for us, it's like if if you needed to hog the, if you needed to be on the platform for 60 or days, everyone did that and you, you kind of had to do that to fund, then we look at that and go, okay, that's the nature of the business. But what's great about it is getting off and letting these other companies come in. Because I must admit, I've picked up some really strange things over the years um, <laughs> that I've had an absolute blast with and I wouldn't have ever had the opportunity to discover through conceivably any other medium. Right, right. That's cool. I mean, with the nature of, of RPG design and, and, you know, selling products there, is it is the the pool necessarily smaller? So like for something like, you know, Thunder of the Thorn, you're you're kind of selling to a GM, right? You don't want everybody at the table theoretically to have access to to the adventure. So is, is the pool necessarily smaller when you're designing and selling RPG, you know, products? I think so, yeah. I think, um, so you take um, tabletop RPGs as kind of a niche of, of board games, and then, because there is a lot of crossover between those two audiences, you, you, you encounter a lot of war gamers and board gamers who play RPGs, like yourself, for example, yeah. discussed this before, and myself as well, I play a lot of board games. So you've got this crossover here, but then it means you're, you're effectively, you've got games of which board games are a niche, of which role-playing is a niche, and then 
if you're creating a system and there's a lot of buzz and excitement around that and you can show off the new system and you can load the gameplay tutorials and whatever else you've got a good size that niche but for us we're now publishing within fifth edition so we're kind of a niche within a third or fourth generation niche now the great thing about fifth edition is is it's no no you're frozen again lost a piece of the pie now nope you're all cut out <laughs> shall i um john shall i turn off my camera and we'll try again just audio yeah we can that try might, it. it might be my upload yeah okay. give me a second i'll uh, i'll take my camera off sure sure so you were, you were saying you're within a niche you know niche of a niche third or fourth generation that, that's where you cut off on us yeah yeah so because you've kind of got games as a category you've got then board game as a category you've got role playing as a category you then got people who are making their own original system and that's really exciting you can do a lot of stuff to expose that gameplay tutorials explanations all kinds of things but once you get down to the to say player options they're quite popular because you're hitting four or five you're hitting four or five six people at the table but then you shrink it down with adventures to just gms and then it really is the smallest niche of so many niches in a line um and that that can be a double-edged sword i think Companies these days are quite smart at offering player options and providing meat at the table for everybody. And we try that a little bit. So like Thunder of the Thorn, as you've seen, is primarily an adventure. We level it at GMs with monsters, NPCs, the kind of things GMs play with, not players. But we have just released today alongside the Kickstarter um, a little preview of the adventure. But what we're also going to do in a short amount of time is hopefully get a player primer together. That's one of our stretch goals get a little player prime together, primer together that GMs can give to their players to introduce them to the setting, and then we're going to build upon that. So we're going to start adding in. We've got some subclasses we've, we've half-designed and laid out and done a little bit of playtesting of. We've got some new backgrounds. We've got some trinket charts. We've got some new feats, which are quite fun, even campaign traits and stuff like that. So what we'd like to do is take a secondary supplement that we can add to the product that kind of gives a little bit more for players. But fundamentally, the one thing I've learned... Um, I, I used to play a lot of... Uh, oh, no, you dropped again. Hello, um, am I there? Am I back? Yep, you're back. Cool. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, I used to play a lot of MMORPGs, things like World of Warcraft. And in the way out, achieving absolutely staggering popularity, every other MMO for the next couple of years tried to be this huge, all-encompassing game that appealed to everyone on every level. And the thing I think with role-playing is there's enough money to go around and you should really pick a niche and appeal to that demographic. Trying to hit everyone is probably going to mean that you don't really appeal to anyone or that after three or four products, people get fatigued because, you know, GM wanted to buy this book for the adventure, but it didn't really have a good adventure because 50 or 60% of the page space was allocated to things they thought would sell better. So I, I do think there's there's something to be said about keeping your your goal a little bit smaller for your for your funding, keeping your expectations of your book a little bit smaller, and then targeting the niche. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're going in with a, a very GM-skewed product initially, and if we hit funding goals, and thus we can expand the book, then we'll start to fold in more and more player-level stuff. And in doing that, we know we're hitting our niche, the group we really think are going to want this. And then if there's a bigger market there, there's a bigger audience there, then we can then open it out to more and more people and and hopefully give everyone what they might want. Sure, sure. And 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 that's one of the things I like about the, the products that you guys are putting out. Like I picked up um, 
Horde of the Dragon Queen because I was going to run uh, my my daughter and her boyfriend through it. And I picked it up and I'm like, cool. Like I, I have the book and I could just sit down and play. And I opened it up and I'm like, wow, I have to write like half of the stuff because you're mm. just giving me here's the world and here's a couple NPCs and go figure it out. I'm like, well, fuck, yeah. I don't have time for that. But yeah. you know, you pick up, you know, Harrowing Heights or Thunder of the Thorn. It's like, here's the adventure. And if you want to add things, if you want to change things around, that's great. But I could sit down, open up the book, and I can run it for as yeah. long as you know, as long as it takes to get through it. And mm-hmm. and to me, that's more appealing, you know, especially, you know, with just the lack of time. I mean, you know, we all try to fit gaming in where we can because everybody's so busy with stuff. To be yeah. able to sit and just open up a book and run is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely the ethos with something like Pathfinder, which is obviously another D20 system, where they really they give you all the rules you could ever want, but but also they really flesh out the lore. So every character has got this unbelievably rich backstory. Every location is so fleshed out. There's a the lore. There's like a logic behind everything, mm. which we really like as uh, as gamers in general, as from from the perspective of a game master or a player. But I know Fifth Ed is their core adventures go much much more to the other end of the spectrum. They're much more condensed and tight and and especially Horde of Dragon Queen more so than just about anything else. But um, but I, I kind of think, well, this is now D&D's rules, and it's D&D are doing a great job of D&D. The way they do their core rule books and, and their adventures, I think is fantastic. I play most of them. I, I've played about half of them I've GM through now, although we haven't made it to the end of any of them because of <laughs> either groups falling apart or, or random TPKs. And Actually, we haven't had a, we haven't had a proper TPK in 5th Ed yet. Um, other than when I was doing two players, and we they died to one of the most pathetic encounters <laughs> you'll ever come across. Um, but I think it's, it's I think the job of the official company is to present very broad rules that the maximum number of people can make the use of and do what they want with. And I think the great thing about third parties is coming out and doing really weird stuff, really unusual stuff, stuff that isn't as safe. It's more risky. It's not designed to appeal to everyone. And in doing so, I think we also shouldn't try and replicate exactly what Fifth Ed are doing. We do need to explain the rules in the same kind of ways. You need to have to pick up one of our books and, and understand that the rules are presented similar, similarly to a D&D book than a Pathfinder book or, or Fate or any other one of 100 systems. But in terms of the adventure design, it's okay to go a different route, one that's less trodden. Um, and that's something we do try and do. And it's funny, actually, you should mention um, Horde of the Dragon Queen and Harrowing Heights. Because when we developed that one, it was kind of a, uh, it was almost a, an answer to my frustration running um, Horde of Dragon Queen. Because <laughs> the early stages of that adventure focus so much on kobolds and cultists, but there's only really one stat block for each. So when I developed Harrowing Heights, one of the big points of it was, okay, what happens if we give you like 21 kobolds and drakes and then another 17 or so kobold NPCs? Because then you can rerun. I, I actually did this and had a group who really wanted to try out Horde of the Dragon Queen. I'd already run it twice. So I rerun it and I just swapped out all the kobolds and cultists for variant kobolds and cultists from our book and then just threw in bosses from the NPCs, their front and center. And I, I found it because I, I like Horde of the Dragon Queen quite a lot, actually. It's such a traditional, you know, here again, back again adventure. It's actually one of my favorites, but it does have. In my opinion, I think it was because it, it predated the official rules. It has a couple of balancing problems. Um, like, for example, where the guys who wrote it thought that assassins were going to be CR1, I think it was, and then they turned out to be CR7. 
to every group like it's a TPK on it because it's completely the wrong level range. So it's it's got that component to it. And until um, the Sword Coast Adventurers Guide dropped, it felt to someone like me who wasn't as immersed in Forgotten Realms like a kind of uh, a very cursory guide. You kind of go on this road where you're like, oh, there's there's Bozlov's Gate. Hello, goodbye. Here's Waterdeep. Hello, goodbye. There's there's no meat on the bones there. They have fixed that up now with, with the later books. There's a lot more there. But um, it was nice to get a chance as a designer to go back and and kind of augment the adventure with some of the things I wanted to have had. And, uh, yeah, it's made it a lot more fun for us to run now. I'll definitely run that one again. Cool, cool. I mean, you guys are, are essentially working within the realms of D&D. Do you have any plans to work on other systems or are there any other licenses that you guys would like to pursue, any other open game stuff? Conceivably. So we've always been big, big Pathfinder fans and players. And um, and we we made quite a bit of time to play this Pathfinder 2 when they dropped the playtest for it. We're really excited to see what they're going to do. I think it's um, it's pretty safe to say that we'll we'll be developing for Pathfinder 2 um, when that drops as well. What we'd like to try and achieve is some parity. So if we're releasing a develop if we're releasing and developing an adventure for fifth edition, well, releasing it for Pathfinder 2, if you look at the externalized costs, which are the big cost for us is like getting in art, getting in all, getting in stuff like that. Well, you're paying for 80, 90 percent of the of the total costs to develop the product once. So developing it for two or three or four systems is a pretty small task. It's one of the reasons you see so many companies doing that. Now, the challenge is for us, it's difficult to um, to master the designing for multiple platforms because we do we don't release that many products, but that doesn't mean we don't work behind the scenes. We work uh, we work stupidly long hours. We're here seven days a week. And we usually work at least 10 hours every day. So we, we just live immersed in, in, in game design constantly. And we only put out probably about 2 or 3% of what we develop. <laughs> because, because, well, I'll give you an example. Of if, if, you, if, if anyone's listening goes and looks up Deep Dark Designs on Kickstarter, you can see a perfect example of, of why that's the case. We've done three Kickstarters today. This is a third one we've just launched. And if you look at Kickstarter 1 and then compare the quality of the Kickstarter to number 2, and then to number three and see the leaps we're making. That's that's what happens when you iterate constantly. You build things up and you say, this isn't good enough. We're not happy, but here's what we can learn from it. Here's what we can improve on. Throw it away and restart. The nice book is we've got, um, we did a couple of years ago, actually about two years ago, sit down and work out how many products we had in the pipeline that we thought would be viable for release and how long we thought it would take. And we've got enough products for at least 10 years. So we'll still be developing for their products through the whole of sixth and onwards. Like we have an unbelievable amount of things we want to do. Um, we'll never get around to half of them, but, um, but it's nice. Then you start to cherry pick as well. The projects that you think are really going to resonate with people, the things that you think are the most exciting that you want to do and that you think might find an audience. But yeah, we will definitely develop um, probably for Pathfinder one and two. We may look at doing some other novelty things. We've, we've talked before about doing some like, earlier edition D&D stuff. Um, one of the things we'd like to do probably is outsource some of that design work. So we'll, we'll write the law to adventure. We'll do the formatting and typesetting. But there's so many phenomenal freelance um, editors and content designers out there who we could absolutely bring in and convert just the mechanics and adventure to something they're an expert in. Because the tricky part for us is if we're going to do Pathfinder 2, Pathfinder 1, we don't want to dial it in. We want to make sure the version of it is as good as the version we're, we're 
we're developing first. And that's a challenge. And it's especially a challenge given the fact that, say with D&D 5th Ed, where its, its design ethos is briefer, so the adventures are shorter, there's less, like we just discussed, there's less overarching detail, there's less world building within the confines of adventure. That means the same adventure for 5th Ed could be 60 pages, but it might want to be 96 for Pathfinder. So, yeah. but you'll get critiqued if you release half the product or you <laughs> try and fund the product at different values. So how do you manage that? So it's tricky because people are sometimes, a lot of people aren't. The majority of our fans, to be fair, have been phenomenally upbeat and wonderfully supportive. But I say the majority, all of them have been. I don't think we've ever had a bad experience to date, which has been astounding to us, to be honest. You, you wouldn't expect to get into this line of work and have just nothing but positive, wonderful experiences. No. Um, I, I should knock on wood because we're just looking at Kickstarter. So I'll, I'll get back to you in a month on that. But but you do expect people, and, and you rightly so, as, a, as someone who's selling something, you have to assume people will approach it cynically because they should do. And if you don't assume that, then you know, you're, you're potentially being unnecessarily naive. And for us to release a book that's half the length or in the wrong form factor is a problem. And I, I've backed projects before where they've given you the D&D and the, and the Pathfinder version. And you can quite often tell that one was the priority. So it's designed as if it was for Pathfinder and then really shoehorned into Fifth Edge or vice versa. And we're not about that. So that's what Thunder of Thorn, one of its components is really about for us, is going, okay, this is longer than the average Fifth Edge adventure. It's more indulgent. There's more world building. There's more complexity. There's more nuance. Will people engage with that? Will they enjoy it? Or is the resounding result going to be, no, that's not for us? And if the case is everyone goes, no, we're not interested, this isn't going to fund, this isn't going to take off, then we know that it's going to be difficult to marriage D&D and Fifth Ed, sorry, D&D and Pathfinder. And then we've got to think about how we, is there a way of, of, of doing that um, that's going to work, or do we need to develop separate products, or should we just focus our efforts on, on Fifth Ed for now and see what lies in the future? Right. And the one other thing about other systems is, yes, we have developed some systems internally. So we've got our own game rules, um, We've actually got a couple, and we're trying to decide which we want to release and when the right time to do that is. Cool. And you will be the cool. first person to, uh, for me to, to grab <laughs> as a play tester when we're ready to start showing those off. Trust me. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> we'll have to get a little campaign in a couple of one-shots or something. Mm, I'd love that, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, so for Thunder and Thorn, you guys really play around with the ideas of sanity and corruption. And I know in the DMG, mm. they do have a little bit, you know, to offer as far as going down that path? What what sort of, you know, took you down that design route? I think we wanted to do something very unusual here, but very, very adventure specific. So one of the things is the, the DMG's madness rules are, going back to what I said earlier on, they're very, very broad. So anyone can use them, make the most of them in any kind of game. And they actually, they expanded those a lot in their Out of the Abyss adventure. Mm -hmm. So they had each of the demon lords in that had their own suite of madnesses which again, were a little bit more specific, but they still covered the kind of general bases. So everything from like insomnia to paranoia to schizophrenia, I think, just the kind of obvious things that you'd expect. And that's not really a criticism because that's what that I would expect and hope for from the official release, something broad that everyone can, can make most of. But we wanted to approach it very, very differently. We, we were like, well, we're not the first party guys. We're a third party. Let's do something situational here, which is potentially of limited value to a GM elsewhere, 
unless they decide to create something with very similar themes. But here, we'll give you an adventure experience that, for a start, you haven't found in a long, long time, but maybe you won't find for a long, long time from now. So our madness is, a big part of our adventure, the, the law to it, is that there's this pernicious psychological thing emanating corruptive waves out through the forest where the adventure's set. And it's kind of affecting everyone's mental state to make them feel more plant-like. So there's a big emphasis on plants. I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the, um, the information sent over, but the madnesses here kind of relate to people, for example, um, getting a, a yearning for photosynthesizing. So they're likely going to stand on their rooftops in the, the midday sun. They're likely to want to hang around in bodies of water up to their waist because they, as a plant, they're drawn to water. They're also likely, um, one of the more random ones, is to want to sow their seeds. So you get a lot of people developing wanderlust for the first time in their lives and just leaving town, just disappearing, because they want to go as far as possible and settle down somewhere new. Um, there's also, um, which again, GMs might not want to engage with, depending on the, the sensibilities of their group, infidelities on the rise in the town as well because everyone's getting this yearning desire to again sow their seeds and and so we have these madnesses that escalate as well throughout the game um and a lot of the npcs experience them but the players can as well so we've, we've designed a system where you can push that onto players if you want to but it's quite optional so because it's a role play thing we've given you some suggestions about folding and initiate um things like inspiration rewards and some basic rules for how you can enforce madnesses if you wanted to. So like, if you feel like a player has a very advanced madness and they're completely ignoring it, and you as the GM have agreed with everyone that you're not gonna do that, there are rules where you can ask them to make certain saves to, um, to do so. And if they fail them, you go, nope, you don't get to, to ignore that madness. But one thing we, we always find is that the rules which take control of the character or encourage the GM to very strongly tell the character, the player what they should be doing right now aren't for a lot of groups. So when yeah. we get to the madness system, we call that one completely optional. It's great. If GMs want to engage with it, there's a huge amount of scope there to do so, but we don't require it, and the adventure isn't balanced around it. It's not a, it's not a requirement. But we think it's a lot more fun if you do. Um, one of the examples of that, a specific example from later in the adventure, and I, I should say now... Um, as a general rule of thumb throughout the interview, I'm not going to get into specific story spoilers, sure, sure. but I will touch, I'll, I'll touch quite a bit on mechanics throughout the adventure and themes and stuff like that. And one of the um, gameplay challenges for the players later on in the adventure is that when they get into this, this further on dungeon location, they, the Ragweed Tumble's got these large vine-like growths coming up through the various floors of the, um, the, the various you know, underground subterranean levels of the forest. And there's a um, there's a dryad who's gone crazy like everyone else, who's now become this this kind of black widow kind of character. She's attacking and killing anyone she can get her hands on, whether it's the players, creatures, monsters, you name it. And because you've got these large growths underground at every level of the dungeon, she becomes this omnipresent threat, which isn't part of the normal encounter structure. So the GM can just have her... Um, Using the dryad rules in Fifth Edge, they can they can almost like step between the trees and it extends to these growths. So she can warp around the dungeon and manifest anywhere. But when your group has madnesses such as um, I am extremely adverse fire because I feel like a plant, I don't want to spend any time near fire or light sources, I want to be in the dark, 
you've suddenly got a group of three or four players huddled around a campfire and somebody wandering off to stay away from them <laughs> who's also going to contend with a serial killer who can appear at any time. And so there's a, this massive discordance there and we've, we've definitely designed some of the madnesses to contradict each other. So we've definitely encouraged a bit of friction in the group um, where people are going to want things that slightly oppose. So groups who want to role play with that will will find this experience that isn't available really anywhere else. Um, but that, again, isn't for everyone. And we know that that's not going to be the ideal scenario for everyone. So what we try and do is make sure that underneath that, there is a fairly traditional adventure with a good dungeon crawl and good mechanics underpinning it all. Sure. And, I, you know, I, I, that may be one of the things that, like, d d is not my most favorite system anymore. Um, and, and I, you know, maybe because it's power fantasy kind of thing. And I think, you know, implementing the sanity effects and having um, not necessarily inter-party conflict, although inter-party conflict, um, and, and having, you know, characters that are flawed and, and not able to just, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, and not able just to do the grandiose thing is so much more engaging then like mm. I just succeeded all the things because I'm super powerful and I'm on, on my way to, to, you know, essentially godhood. Like it's just, mm-hmm. you know, there's some disconnect there. And I, and I find that, that, that flawed play is so much more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we get, we get even more into that when you get to the other side of the equation. So you've got the, the mental side, the, uh, the manifestations you get there are the more role play skewered ones that we support GMs in, in enforcing if you choose to, but we treat the entire system as optional. But then we get to the physical corruption side of things, which is where that the adventure assumes you're using the second system because it's much more mechanical. And so we have to, um, because it comes largely in the form of impediments for the characters, we need to balance for that. So the encounters are based around the idea that as you go on, your group is accumulating a certain amount of these physical impediments. But they then really augment the experience an awful lot. So again, like to give you one example, and both these systems are quite fleshed out. There's at least, I think there's a dozen or so um, of the mental manifestations and they've all got four tiers to them. And then I think there's 10, I'm, I'm doing it off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, I think it's about 10 or so uh, of the physical corruptions and they've got three tiers of evolution, uh, advancements you go through. So there's quite a lot to each system baked into it. And one of the, um, in fact, I've got a proof copy right next to me, so I'll tell you one of them specifically. <laughs> so you can kind of get a sense of how it would change the group dynamic. So ablation is one of the physical um, corruptions you'd get. And at phase one, it gives you disadvantage on dexterous strength checks to use one of your limbs. So that is when you get it, one of your limbs starts to become corrupted and tainted until you increasingly lose, lose the benefit of it. So initially, it's just strength and dexterity checks. So that would be something like climbing, where it would be reasonable to assume you're using both limbs. But then when you get to the next phase, any weapons that you're using in both hands, i.e. versatile weapons in both hands, two-handed weapons, or anything else you can, you know, you, you, anything you're using in your second hand. So if you're like two-handed, you know, you're dual wielding, for example, attacked with your offhand, come with disadvantage. And by the third phase, you can't use the affected limb at all. And the reason that's so important is suppose you're playing a barbarian who's got a D, D12 great axe and that's your whole shtick. Well, you're now rolling with disadvantage by stage two. So it's like, oh, should I go to say a, a throwing hammer, uh, a throwing axe or a throwing hammer or something that equivalent? 
but that's now a d6 you've dropped your damage enormously but it's still better than having disadvantage right so suddenly you're going oh actually does anyone else in my group have a spare longsword because a, a d8 versatile to a d10 is a much better weapon but suppose you're you're like your build is the ranger with a two-handed bow well suddenly like you might not be stacked up for melee combat and a lot right. of the impediments will do things like reduce your movement distance um some of them are more interesting than that one of them is like a one is a growth that emanates out from you like a spear like lancing through your torso and straight away you have reduced movement speed moving through undergrowth you can no longer squeeze it slows you down and it's like oh okay well if i was a front range a front a frontline melee fighter actually having having the fact that i'm slowed down and my best weapons aren't effective and i've got multiple corruptions already maybe we should put the cleric up front maybe the monk should be up front maybe i should be falling back and so a lot of them do change the group dynamic quite a bit especially because we level that at the gm as well for the monsters so a lot of the monsters and encounters throughout this we've got quite a few new stat blocks and quite a few new npcs where the kind of corruptive corruptive effect on the players is affecting creatures of the forest much much more severely so they're way further along by by and large sure. and straight away some of them manifest in very strange ways so you shouldn't be surprised to encounter say a pack of enemies that have resistance to all spell damage <laughs> but more often than not the enemies who manifest that way have a visual clue in their description now we can't force gms to give you the visual clue or anything gms will will spend as long as they want on the law and the world building and it's also up to players as well to take initiative to ask what they're seeing but right. what we can do is put the note there for gms so you can go okay the creatures who, who look this kind of way who act this kind of way you know if you've got growths coming out of your feet and your legs are all warped and twisted it's a reasonable assumption that creatures slow down so maybe your entire party should take a step back not risk any kind of infection or interaction with these in melee and all swap to ranged because you've got all the time in the world to do that so we definitely want we want this adventure to feel specific and make players stop and think um and you know one of the ways we do that is of course like like i mentioned earlier about this this dryad character is making you think about who how you're resting where you're resting when you're resting um yeah. The whole adventure is, is heavily plugged into that side of things, especially because once you start getting corruptions and manifestations, you start to unravel quite quickly. Um, <laughs> so we've kind of arranged the adventure. The first half of it's big and open, and things like the mental corruptions come in very, very, very slowly. And then once you start moving through the last stages of going through the dungeon, as you get nearer and nearer to the source of what's going on, everything gets quicker faster and more dangerous so you're always weighing up um should we move forward at less than max health and resources and risk getting beaten up stop and rest where we are but then start to unravel very very quickly because we're near this the source of the problem or fall back rest more safely and thus progress things slower but also risk random encounters and burning through the resources we've regained so mm -hmm. the the whole adventure here is a timing game. Do it's making you balance these resources of okay, we're not doing well and we're getting worse and worse over time. Where do we move from, and 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 should we be pushing the envelope or should we be holding back? And there's some really really subtle stuff in there about that. So like 
one example of that I'll give you, and then I'll um, and then I'll shut up for a minute. You can move on. <laughs> I get too excited explaining these things. Um, we we're not a huge fan of the older style random encounters in dungeons where it's just completely random things thrown in for no reason. So our random encounters make quite a lot of sense. But one of the particular ways in which they make sense is that any new enemies coming into the dungeon arrive from the same location. There's actually an opening into the place where enemies wander in from. But that means that if you're a group paying attention, for the first half of the dungeon, you'll notice they're coming from ahead of you. Any random encounters come from ahead of you. The latter half of the dungeon, if there's a random encounter, it catches up to you from behind. So it might get spawned and might not catch up to you for a room or two because the enemy's just casually moving that way. But if you imagine if you always knew or you had a damn good reason to think you knew where enemies were coming from, that would have a huge impact on where you took rests. Sure. You know, would you dig in to be visible from one side? Would you face one direction? Would you barricade one side of yourselves? But again, unless you've listened to this podcast um, <laughs> and you're playing it as well, you're not going to know that. But that is one example of many, many things in the adventure that tie together in hopefully what we think are neat little ways to kind of make the adventure consistent and three-dimensional. And we'll, we'll have to find out if people like that and if they think that works, but that was the intention. Yeah, I, I like that internal consistency. Like you say, it's, you know, things are coming from a specific area. There's a reason, there's a rationale behind it. It makes sense in world. It's not like, oh yeah, these mm -hmm. goblins just... They were down here for the last 10 years. They're just waiting for you to show up and now they're walking yeah. by. Like it's, that's, you know, okay. I mean, it has its own, you know, place in D and D history, I guess. And it's whatever. But um, I, I, when I was running at home, the fourth campaign, I was doing sandbox and that was it. The thing that really, it's like, okay, cool. I can create all kinds of encounters and stuff, but like, what's the internal logic? How am I processing from here to here? Cause I want it to make sense. Even if it's just for me, if the players don't get it, like it has to make sense for me to run it. Otherwise it's like, eh, this is kind of dumb. Like, okay, they're having fun, but like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think stepping away from, from being a game designer for a moment and someone who's, who's a GM, I always find that the more internally consistent the world is, the more you can ask the players to invest in it and treat it like a real place. Mm. And that is important because you want, the consequence of, say, a player death to have meaning, to have weight. And what I love, my, my favorite thing role-playing, where I love it, is when, when you get a new player and they start playing and, and, and most players inevitably kind of um, break the fourth wall and metagame quite a lot at the outset because that's, that's what playing video games and, and board games and, and what we're naturally drawn to as people. And often if people stick with a character or a campaign or stick with role-playing for... You know, even as little as six or a dozen or so sessions, they get to the point where they start to spend long enough with the character, they start to forget it's a game, and then they get to that point where they make the decision that actually, if you were approaching it as a board game, would cost them the game. It would be the stupid, where they throw away their character's life or risk it to pursue what they think the character would do. And for me, that's the eureka moment where you go, aha, a role player is born. And I, I've seen that, you know, dozens of times at the table, and it's my favourite thing. But if you have a game world where there isn't internal consistency, you forestall that effect quite a lot. And sometimes you never get that eureka moment because, you know, I, I've played it. I've played at the table with other GMs who are just coming into it, where they misbalance encounters sometimes, and you get like, 
you get the a bunch of assassins who are here to assassinate the players, absolutely destroy them. But then the GM hadn't intended that, so everyone wakes up alive because the assassins spared them. But the narrative was they were there to kill them. There's no logic to it at all. Yeah. And I always think, as as a GM, when I'm designing an encounter, I will design say say I know my session's got two easy encounters and a lethal encounter. I'll design two easy encounters that are with the NPCs who wouldn't want to kill you. They'd want to take you alive. Or they're with wild animals that will beat you down, but then move on from knocking you to the ground to attack other standing targets. So they're not likely to continue in mindlessly attacking the characters who's on the ground till death. Um, I'll make those the lethal encounter because the probability of death there is the lowest. And then the most forgiving encounters should be the ones where the enemies are actually going to try and kill you. But that doesn't feel like um, false. It doesn't feel like bullshit yeah. because it isn't that. It's, it, you're making smart decisions away from the table and then you're sticking to them. And as a part of that, which, which is a double-edged sword, um, because there are times I'd love to shoot one things in, I've never, ever used a GM screen. I never will. I roll everything with my players straight. And it's derailed everything a million times. <laughs> but I, that's one of the other things about GMing a lot and really getting the habit of it. Is you start to realize that every anecdote that is celebrated by the players and every story that's told by them four years on is one that is born of their own choices and actions. They don't remember the campaign for its brilliance. They remember where they had control. So I think you just you roll with it and you run with it and you adapt to it. But what we try to do when we design shifting away from being a GM is we try and make it easy for the GMs to do that. So with, um, I don't know whether or not you've, you've seen it, it's, some of it's in the example I've sent you over. We've got random, in, uh, random encounters, random events, random discoveries, locations, right. um, treasures, all kinds of things like that in the jungle overworld. And what we try to do is replicate the same themes throughout. So there's a guy wandering around the forest who's actually carrying one of the magic items He's an adversarial character as well, so if you meet him, it's a good chance you'll fight him and, and take the magic item for the party, which is, again, fun. We, we, we get a bit bored of always finding magic items and treasure hoards and chests. Sure. Um, we were like, no, let's give it to an NPC. Let's have him wield it. <laughs> but that NPC you could meet as an event wandering forest. You could also stumble across or learn of his camp because it's also a location, and there's also a quest related to it as well, or rather a quest seed related to it that would prompt you there. What it means as a GM is you can jump around the book and all of the different sections are designed to go hand in hand. So the players can be like, oh, that was so clever. Did you did you come up with that off the top of your head? And it's like, oh, actually, the book is doing most of the work for me because right. we don't want to make GM's jobs harder. We want to make them as simple as possible and then free you up to go beyond what's in the book, to add things to it and do more with it. But the book needs to cover your bases. It needs to give you enough options to work with that you're not... Like you said earlier with um with Horde of the Dragon Queen, we don't want GMs to buy an adventure from us and go, ah, oh, really it's down to me to make the damn thing. <laughs> like you want yeah. the adventure there. The nuts and bolts have to be in place. Right. And, and it makes it easier to manipulate from there, right? Because then if you do have the time or if you do, you know, as you're reading through the adventure as GM and you're like, oh, you know what would be cool if, you know, XYZ, and then you can, you know, move things around or you can add things. But, you know, if if you're pressed for time or or whatever, you do have everything that you need to sit and run, which is, like I said, that's what's appealing to me because just time is mm. it's such a premium. I mean, the yeah. D&D game, you know, was completely homebrew, and that's, man, that's so much work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, it's a battle. It really is. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, but we are going to do a live poll of uh, you guys are sponsoring. I have right here a copy of Le Legendary Adventures. It's uh, Harrowing Heights. You guys have sponsored a giveaway for us. So I wanted to tease that at the beginning, and I forgot now that we're like an hour into the show. <laughs> I want to do it like the weather, you know, like you give them in the beginning, you show the book, you're like, Hey, we're doing this giveaway. We're going to read the, uh, you know, read the winners and then like, just move on and not talk about it for a while. <laughs> totally forgot. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I feel so disorganized, <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to thank you for, uh, for suggesting that and, uh, and sponsoring our first like legit giveaway. That's awesome. And I, I totally appreciate you guys kind of, you know, throwing in with us and, uh, and and supporting the show and, you know, giving us an opportunity to give, uh, you know, two lucky people an awesome adventure to play with. You're very welcome. Um, we're really, really quite excited to be involved. It's been quite nice seeing uh, seeing the list of entrants grow. Um, yeah, it's great, to be honest. I think the, uh, the, the whole community thing is wonderful. And whether it's your own community or part of the wider role-playing community, um, it's exciting. It's exciting. Um, so yeah, you're very welcome, and uh, yeah, it definitely won't be the last time, I'm sure. Cool, very cool. Um, ah, fuck, it just went away. Well, all right. Well, maybe I'll circle back around. <laughs> <laughs> um, prior to the Kickstarter, uh, you've had, you know, essentially what's a soft release for your uh, beginners bobble series. You want to talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit? Yeah, sure. The um, the beginner bobble series is that big thing last year. We had. 10 of them come out over the course of the year, about one a month with uh, two months we took off to get ahead in other projects. Like the, we released a couple of classes last year as well. So we took a little bit of time off to get those out the door. But the rest of the time we focused on beginner baubles, which were, um, we wanted to do something unique and new for fifth edition that, that wasn't really out there and wasn't being done. And one of the cool things we really liked about fifth ed was their little trinket charts. Very, very simple, very, very small. But the idea that every player just gets a random roll on like a D100 chart for something odd and unusual that isn't part of their class feature, isn't part of their race, isn't part of their equipment buy, it's completely randomized. Because the number of times I've given that to a player, and it'll be something silly like um, you've got a medallion with a, uh, with a brooch attached, and the player immediately goes, oh, the brooch has got a picture of my dead relative and it's actually formed of bone taken from my first kill. And they, they really make it their own because yeah. it's not really functional. It makes them unique, unusual. And we wanted to take an element of that and, and reinvent it in a different context and make it a little bit more me mechanical to represent both themes because a lot of players want something meaty at first level uh, beyond just their basic starting equipment. So we had the idea of doing, um, in the end, it was 200 because of the, the length of the series, um, beginner baubles, which are basically something between no power at all and the power of like what would be considered an uncommon magic item. It's like a low-level magic item. Um, so they say you look at a magic weapon, it'll give you a plus one to attack, plus one to damage, and then usually some traits alongside that. Our limit for our beginner baubles was that it could give you as much as a plus one to damage, actually as much as a plus two to damage, or as much as a plus one to attack, but never both. So it never quite got as powerful as what a magic item would, would be. And the same with armors and wondrous items. We had equivalent rules for ourselves. So we never got quite as bad, uh, as significant mechanically as those big numbers. But what it did do was get quite broad. So we added lots of features and traits. And then we designed this kind of cool, weird system for it, 
where the way we encourage GMs and players to use it is at the beginning of a game, a campaign, when rolling up characters, everyone rolls a D4 and they get that many beginner baubles to pick from and they get to pick one and take it into the game. So if you roll a four, you then roll four random beginner baubles across whatever supplements the GM's got from the collection. You get to look at those four items and pick the one you wanted. But then we opened it out to the group. So at the end of it, everyone in the group got first choice to their own items and then could pick any untaken items out of anyone else's. And the idea with that was really that certain items are very skewered towards certain classes. Sure. So if you're, a, if you're a ranger, you want a longbow and a great axe is of no interest to you. So you, we didn't want to make it really likely that you were going to draw you know, nothing but great axes. And everyone was like, well, this is mechanical, but it's not for me. So the idea of getting the pool together is really getting characters at the outset and players at the outset talking to each other. I want this because of this. You can take this from me. What would help the group the best? I mean, there's nothing stopping players if they wanted to picking multiple items that would benefit one player and handing them all over to them because we don't use, because they're lower level items, we don't use attunement. So none of the items relate to attunement at all. Um, we use something called synchronization, which is an equivalent just for the reasons that um, synchronization and attunement make certain things really convenient. So they make a way of establishing ownership, of, establishing ownership of an item and linking it to a character almost without them having to hold it or be equipped by it or whatever else. So we right. replicated attunement. We just didn't put an attunement cap on it. It doesn't contribute towards it. But it makes the items a lot easier to balance and design um, and handle at the table. They are, I must admit, they're, um, we do caution GMs to think about how they want to use them because a team fully equipped with beginner warbles is definitely more powerful than a team without them. They are mechanical. But um, there's some really fun, interesting ideas in there. And uh, we're very proud of that line. We are gonna, we're going to revisit that line as well um a little bit further down the line um because i, I don't have you seen any of the uh, the production from beginner balls i do yeah um I, I have a couple of them and the art is amazing i mean there's a ton mm -hmm. of flavor um you know within them like I said some of them are are super specific you know uh, you know as as far as character class and things like that and, and then some of them are a little bit more um, you know, cross Ooh. cross purpose, yeah, a little bit more broad, and and there's just a ton of flavors. It's just a really neat. It's a neat supplement, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it gives you a lot of options in it. And, and like you said about the trinkets, it, it really kind of like it helps to inform the character a little bit. Like, where did this come from? And you know, was this passed down from somewhere? And is it something that you know was was found somewhere? And you didn't know what it was right away, and then like mm -hmm. there's this this discovery of you know, oh shit, it does this, or yeah, yeah it, it's really neat. Yeah, it's um, it's quite fun to see players kind of thrown at, at the beginning of the game a meaty a meaty choice outside of it because I think a lot of the time this is much more of an issue with fifth edition than say Pathfinder. With Pathfinder, there's so many options now. But with fifth edition, there is an element of like the accessibility is also limiting if you play a lot of it. So once you've seen three or four people who want to play a barbarian, I said the same person who's played barbarian three or four times. These subclasses don't make a lot of difference at first level because they come in later. Right. And there's only a few builds for them that are super viable. So you don't really necessarily want to play like a forest, um, like a wood elf uh, barbarian. Uh, or at least you, you absolutely could. And half the time it's great playing against type, but you're not going to classically go to that when you've got dwarf barbarians and you've got half orc barbarians and you've got some expanded races that are super, 
super compatible with it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of your options, if you know your character concept is you want to be like an elf druid, then a lot of it's a foregone conclusion, If you're, especially if you're playing second, third, fourth time through the game. So having something completely random that's quite mechanical thrust at you at the outset, we found that the more times you've played fifth ed and the quicker you are with character creation, the more fun beginner balls become um, because they give you something that, that, that's just that far out there, which we really like. And one of the cool things about it is each of the books of the series is, is quite themed. So we do say to the GMs, look, if you know that like you're, you've got in your party, you've got a cleric who's a knightly cleric, say, uh, you might want to pick out religious regalia is one of the beginner baubles, which focuses on cleric-like weapons and objects and wondrous items, but also very broadly priestly uh, ones. There's a lot of like, um, we've got, for example, like draconic censors inc- uh, and stuff like that. And, various religious paraphernalia that don't really suit a cleric necessarily more or less than anyone else, but they still tie into that theme. So we'd encourage GMs like, okay, if you know a player is going to like these two or three themes, then when you get to rolling for them, talk to them. Do they want you to roll all 10 charts, like for the 10 books or just one or two or three? I had players in my game say, look, I know I want a item from Wilderness Essentials. This was actually, we only had a couple out because they were playing a barbarian and a ranger, those two. They wanted a couple of roles on that chart, but then they were like, screw it. Give me roles on the entire series for everything else. And so it's quite fun in that regard. And we do, at the end of each book, present some ideas and suggestions for, um, for like people who might want to take the bauble from you. What's its origin? What's its... For example, we did um, one that was more inspired by Asian culture um, called Eastern Dawn. And playing to like that sam that samurai drama style setup and stuff, we made that like what could be some rituals and um, practices associated with your um, with your bauble. So here's a list of like a, a D12 or something chart of it might not be D12, it might be D8 or something chart of different ceremonies like tea ceremonies and stuff like that that your your specific bauble could historically be involved in. And so we did something unique with every single book to make you think about like. Okay, uh, another example of that as well is if the GM wanted to run a session zero where you've all built characters, you've all randomly picked your warbles, but now instead of just giving them to you and starting the game, the GM might want to say, this adventure um, will take you into a dragon's vault and you'll find them in, in, within the confines of that. To present these little quest primers and quest hooks and ideas were like, great, use this as a, as a catalyst to get the warbles and acquire them and move forward from there. But um, we had an awful lot of fun writing that. It was nice for us as well because we've only released bigger projects in the past. Big for us, certainly. Where we, we, you know, with with our first Kickstarter, the first time round when we launched that, we'd never even heard of InDesign. We weren't big on Photoshop. We weren't experienced in these platforms, and so we've had to learn everything and take forever and things as we go. And so we wanted last year to go. Well, let's actually set out to release smaller books regularly and start to hone on our deliverables. Can we release a book on time? And then iterate and do that again and again and again and get slicker and primer and, and, and faster and more efficiently before we do something bigger and much, much more ambitious again, which is what we're doing now. And the turnaround for that has been really promising. And the difference has been huge. Going from the second Kickstarter to this one, I think when we, when we entered the Kickstarter for number two, we really weren't that far along with the projects. We had good outlines for everything. And we had a, a fair bit of the art back, but that's where it stopped. 
But this time around, like we've we've written over half the book to a release candidate. That, well, you've seen it. You've got half the book, yeah. and that's that's right now a release candidate. There's nothing unless we modify things a little bit further ahead that change anything. You know, earlier in the book, that's done. That's that's that'll be the version we release. Shy of the table of contents, which of course will um that will obviously be updated as we go. But otherwise, we're we're about halfway there to to what will be the release, and the rest of it's much much more. Um, advanced than we've done in the past we've not only got through the outlines but we got drafts of everything and now we're in the throes of playtesting some of the more elaborate uh, some of the more elaborate fights to make sure the uh they're, they're just where we want them to be sure and, th- and that's awesome and that's that's great to hear i mean you know kickstarter you know has, has moved from its origins of like hey i have this crazy idea you know this is what it is help me do it till till almost you know, in, in a lot of ways, especially for our, um, you know, genres of board games and mm-hmm. RPGs of of a pre-order system now. Like, hey, I've got everything ready to go, but, you know, we're a small company and like this is how we need to do business because I can't run, you know, 4,000 copies of a book that maybe I sell or maybe I don't. So yeah. to, to come to the table and be like, hey, we're 50% done with this already. So we know we're going to be able to turn this around quick, you know, assuming printing goes well and, you know, nothing happens to anyone and, you know, thing, things fall as we expect, like, boom, you get this in a couple of months. <laughs> mm, yeah. Which is awesome as a backer. I mean, I, I think people that back a lot, I, I mean, I don't know that, I guess people are so surprised and they get angry when something doesn't come like, hey, we're going to do this in July and July comes and goes and you're like, hey, we're going to need another month because, you know, printing is weird and, and shipping and whatever. And it'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm supposed to get this. Like if you back projects, you know, delays are inevitable. I mean, it's just, it's what yeah. happens. And, and, it, and it's still like, I, I chuckle every time I see it, um, <laughs> that people get, and, and, you know, at some point it becomes ridiculous, right? I mean, there are some mm-hmm. projects that just lag and lag and lag, but I mean, I, I've waited, you know, six months to a year to get something that should have been funded and like, okay, it's cool. Like, and, and I get maybe it's different because of, you know, placement in the community, like being a podcaster and knowing a lot of people, like, you know, I know like, a, you know, I back, you know, Thunder of the Thorn. It's not like I'm not going to get it. It's not like you guys are going to run away. And if it's late, I know because it's going to go into the quality and, and you know, it, it's going to come back to me as a better product. And if mm-hmm. I have to wait for that, eh, I mean, so be it. Yeah, yeah, I get that I completely. I think I'm... I think there's also there's two components. Of course, delays are, are pretty inevitable because because well, for a start, that's the nature of things. That actually happens in every medium. The difference is we don't tend to know about it yeah. um, with traditional releases because it's much easier for you know internal deadlines for a video game move a thousand times before it comes out. Um, so it, it's definitely more visibly public with a, with a lot of kickstarters than than is often the case. Like by the time a lot of companies throw out their actual release date. They're, they're pretty locked in by that point, usually. They know what they're doing. So there is that challenge to it. And I also think there's a component of it which I would call something like Star Citizen Syndrome, where um, where a, a project comes out that was supposed to be one thing. So somebody's created something, they're like, well, this will be 20 grand, and it'll be a book of this length that does this. And then because it funds so well, and people people do as well. If you're a Kickstarter backer, I often see this, can we have more stretch goals? What more can you give us because it's doing so well? People do like to feel part of a movement. That's that's absolutely not a bad thing. They want to be involved in something and see it getting enhanced and growing. They want a reason to share it. 
and to get into the hype and the buzz. But what you quite often get is a project that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it comes out significantly later than was originally anticipated or expected. And also kind of blows, sometimes blows into something it wasn't actually sold on being. I mean, we've, we had Star Citizen move back enormously, but the features, most of the features that game's being sold on now weren't in the original Kickstarter because the game changed so much. Right. Now, what I will say about that is the people who want Star Citizen actually seem overwhelmingly happy with that. So it's not really a criticism of Star Citizen, but it's, it is we don't generally want to be the company that does that, where we go, we're going to release X for this budget with this X. Aha, it's all changed. That's not <laughs> something we want to do. I don't think it's a great... We would rather release more products that do what each individual product wanted to be and was clearer and honest and didn't try and trick you into buying a lot of things you don't want. And that's one of the reasons, and there's a very specific reason for us. Actually, there's another example that's just happened. I, I saw today actually related to Kickstarter more specifically as well, is um, a game, uh, there's, a, there's a PC game coming up that I believe, um, I didn't get a chance to see much more than the headline, I believe was supposed to be coming to, uh, to the PC for backers who backed the PC version, um, that the um, the Epic Game Store has just got exclusivity for. So everyone assumed they'd be getting a Steam copy or a you know non-locked, completely open, no proprietary anything copy. Has just found out they have to get it through a platform they didn't want. Mm. And of course, like that isn't what people backed for. And if you're a creator on Kickstarter, you know you, you are asking people to take a leap of faith on you. They're putting their money into what you're offering and giving you the benefit of the doubt to flip on what their expectations were. And I can't really comment too much on that because I'm not very versed in that story, but the, the cliff notes of it, great visual example of the kind of thing I'm describing, where it seems like a lot of people are immediately going, well, this isn't what I supported you for, and you wouldn't have got your product made without someone like me. And so for us, like with Thunder the Thorn, we're scheduling only a couple of months to get it out because we know that delays are possible. Of course they are. But if you're planning to release a game in three years' time and you have to delay on this massive three-year project, well, it'd be reasonable to assume those delays might be six months to a year. If your project's only two or three months out and it's a much smaller scope, your delays should be a percentage of that. So if, right. we, if we delay, we're optimistic that our delays would be a week or two and we'd beat ourselves up over that pretty badly. But I don't think anyone's going to mind a week or two given what they're used to on Kickstarter. Um, but one of the big reasons we do that now uh, goes back to our first Kickstarter. Then and there, when we did the first one, we wanted to turn around the project quickly, and we only set out to do small books. And we actually took a lot longer to fulfill than expected. It went from being like two weeks a book or something along those lines. I think it was two weeks a book to being like a, a more like six weeks a book. So we ended up finishing over the four books we kickstarted like three or four months later than we intended to, uh, quite, a, quite a lot over the deadline. But in doing so, we doubled, we more than doubled the length of every book. I think there were 16 to 32 pages they were targeting and ended up being 74 pages, 82 pages. We expanded the scope of what we were doing because we saw opportunities to do that. And our backers, thank goodness, were amazing. To this day, we've never had a single complaint from anyone about it. Um, we either got you know, a fair amount of silence because most people don't engage with every post. So you just don't get people commenting either way. And then those that did were incredibly enthusiastic and positive, but we weren't. That did not sit right with us at all. I can tell you, um, 
and, and I imagine maybe you get this where if you've done an interview with someone and they're expecting out by a certain point, but editing takes longer, there's problems, and you're thinking, oh, God, it, it, it's taking long. Like if you're creating something, you're committing to it, and people are waiting and it's overdue, it is not a fun headspace to be in. Yeah. And we said, right, in future, let's flip this. Let's do as much of the work going in as we can, set reasonable deadlines, and expand carefully. Um, so that's a huge part of what we do now by necessity. Right. And, and I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, you, you want to be – the other thing, too, is, you know, if you have regular communication with mm-hmm. backers, you say, hey, this is where we are, this is, this is where this part of the project is, and this is where this part of the project is, I think people are a lot more forgiving in that regard mm-hmm. because they see that stuff is happening, you're engaged, you know, they can engage on, on whatever level they, you know, choose to be. But it's not complete silence. And then, mm. you know, it gets shipped out six months later, a year late, and it's a complete surprise to everybody. You're like, hey, we shipped everything out today. And you're like, wait, what? Like, are we going to get <laughs> this is still coming? Okay, I guess that's cool. I mean, they have my money. Um, yeah. But that, that communication is such a key. Um, mm. One of the projects that I, that I did have to wait for for, you know, an extended period of time was the, uh, the Cthulhu Invictus book. And I'll have to throw an Oscar under the bus. I mean, we're, you know, we're quite friendly. Uh, but the, the the flip is, you know, every month, every two weeks, he had an update. This is where we're at. This is, this is in editing. We're waiting for this art. We're, you know, this is going to the printer, but like, you know, the, the page, uh, you know, setup was wrong and we have to redo this thing. You know, and at the end of the day, we got a better book for it. And we knew where everything was at because there was this constant communication of, you know, this, yeah. this is what we need to do. This is what we're doing. I'm sorry, but, you know, like, this is where we're at. And, mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. I mean, that's that's fine. It comes when it comes. Yeah, I definitely think um, that's something in the first Kickstarter that we did we did okay on it was our communication for the delays and stuff like that. We didn't do too badly, and we didn't get any negative, you know, negative feedback about it at all. We got to a point where things were slowing down, and we were we were getting more frustrated about the delays on our end. Where it, the, I think the instinct of a creative things do run over is to want to clam up and not put yourself out there and talk. You want to, for a start, you want to knuckle down and get back on track. But the desire there for us was to start to shut up, and we realized there was at one point we hadn't updated in at least maybe two or three weeks, which wasn't you know a huge amount of time, um, and we weren't getting people chasing us, but. It, it suddenly hit home to us. It was like, no, 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 we're going the wrong route with this. We need to stop and go the other way. And then at that point, I think we committed to weekly or bi-weekly updates. And we did that for the rest of the fulfillment. But I think part of it is understanding Kickstarter and what it's there for. Because I think a lot of people who use Kickstarter, you get a lot of people now who've either been burned or are just cynical more and would never back anything. And you get a lot of people on Kickstarter back a lot of things. And it's almost like there's a separate audience there so, like, we would quite frequently expect a lot of people to back on Kickstarter who would never buy a general sale product because they're much more interested in the Black Star and the, the Kickstarter sorry, culture and that interaction with developers. And what you've got to understand then, once you get into that mentality, is they're not actually backing just to buy a product. They're backing to be part of making something happen. So mm-hmm. if you get to the end of your campaign and you go silent for months or years and you just dump the product out, well, what a lot of them were actually backing for wasn't just the product, it was the journey. And you're robbing them of the experience they 
like they kind of wanted to be able to go hey look here's another update it's great to see how things are evolving it's great to hear what's going on being behind the scenes and being involved i mean another example that's patreon people who run patreons get so much of their support and following for like say you're running a patreon you make youtube videos well you're putting your youtube video out there anyway for everyone so what do the patreons get well, often behind the scenes, cutting room things, things that didn't make the cut, snafus, gag rules, you name it. But right. there's still people who will pay for that because they like you, they want to support you, they want to support what you're doing. And I think Kickstarter is definitely used by people just buying a product, but it's not just used by those people. And I think you're doing a disservice to the rest of the crowd if you only cater to that. And of course, you know, I've, I would always remind everyone, I know a lot of people who back it who do say, I follow a lot of the tabletop design groups as well on, on things like Facebook, who talk about their experience with backers. And w there's often conversation about how regularly you should put updates. When are you, you know, flooding people? When are you bothering people? And, um, uh, and one of the great things about Kickstarter updates that does come up is like, you do have to play it calm. You can't flood people's inboxes. You can't spam them. But backers who don't want any amount of updates, who like don't want an update more than once every three or six months, well, sometimes you just have to remind them there's an unsubscribe button. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. sometimes they're like because the majority of people do want to be kept in the loop, and that is important to people. And going back specifically to what you said about play about consumers having an option, backers having an option, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. I've seen a lot of Kickstarters now, um, maybe not a lot, maybe a handful, who have said after the fact, like, "Hey, we've got this opportunity to do this instead of this." What do you guys want us to do? And a good example of that for us is we would, if we get to a point where the cost of offset printing was pretty proportionate to the cost of POD, we'd rather offset because it gives us a chance to start working with printing agencies, getting quotes, dealing with a new aspect of the business, dealing with fulfillment centers and learning some of the, some of the processes there. Um, but also it gives us a chance to give our backers a much better book. But in doing that, it might be a two to four week or two to six week delay, but for a much better book. And if the costs are roughly equivalent um, and there isn't like if, if, say, we had so many backers, it was just a way better opportunity straight out the gate to go offset. We'd, we'd do that a lot sooner. We'd immediately move towards that and try and fold it into the same time frame we've got. And we have budgeted for that. So actually, we might be releasing Thunder of Thorn quite a bit earlier than we're advertising at the moment because it's built around the possibility of offset, because we would rather fulfill early and build some goodwill than delay. Don't tell, any, it might. tell anybody that. <laughs> yeah, now they'll revive their expectations. But, but it might be the case that at the end of all this, we get to a point where we go, look, we can offer you a much better book, but you're all going to have to wait a month. What do you guys want us to do? And then we throw that back to the community. Um, I don't know that will happen, you know, it, it's pretty unlikely because I don't think we're going to get to the realms here where we can offset. We might get the sales in because we've done an awful lot this time to do better, an awful, awful lot. And you never know. If it's the right product at the right time, we could do really, really well and get there. But what we want to do is buffer ourselves by quite a lot financially before we go into the realms of that. Because the last thing we want to do is commit to spending a fortune on an offset print run and then have it blow up in our face. Because like I just said, we haven't, worked with fulfillment centers we haven't worked with printers so we want to be at a point where it's like oh it all blew up we lost all of the money well we can afford to do it again we want to be able to offset twice over before we offset at all um so we'll see it's um it may be a pipe dream but my experience of um of this industry and of life in general 
is that you don't get anywhere by planning small. Plan big and then manage your expectations. You should always aim to be the big company and act like you've achieved that. So we do put these things in place um, and then we temper our expectations, but, but we shall see. It was really nice. Yeah, well, fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, so, so let me ask you, this is more of a out in the weeds sort of question, but as we're talking about like Kickstarter and funding goals and, and um, stretch goals and all these sorts of things, I mean, you know, people who are involved, you know, at least tangentially, you know, within the industry, listen to podcasts and, and listen to interviews and stuff like this. You know, you have to know the margins, you know, in the industry are super small. I mean, you have people like come on games where, you know, they kickstart some, you know, two million dollars for a for a thing. But like you say, the game gets bigger and bigger and there's more minis and there's more of this. And at the end of the day, you look at that number, you know, kickstart takes 10 percent. And then, you know, you start getting your production costs and your shipping and all this stuff. And they may make $2 million, but like, how much company did the money make? And I know, capitalism, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, for industries like this and, and you know, for people wanting to feel like they're a part of a community, like so you can interact on, on uh, you know, Kickstarter and, and, you know, get the updates and, you know, maybe offer suggestions. <laughs> like, oh, I played this adventure and I see you guys are doing this. And, and there, you know, there's a lot more you know, back and forth between creators. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like stretch goals have kind of created a disparity, right? Because like I would see, like you, like I said, your, your, your funding goal is 2,000 pounds. Well, if you made 100,000 pounds and you had like, okay, cool, we upgraded the paper and we got offset and we're going to add this extra chapter and then you guys bank the rest, I'm happy, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, that allows you guys to live for one, mm-hmm. but then it allows you to put out more products, which I'm clearly interested in. So I'm going to get better, you know, things later on and it's good for you. And, you know, I, I, I know there's some sort of disconnect of like, hey, I'm giving you my money up front and give me all the things and give me all the stretch goals. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm out in the weeds sometimes on, on some of the stuff where like, I would love to see you guys make a million dollars. And like, just give me the book. I don't care. Like, go to the Bahamas. Like, you know. John, John, you can write me a check anytime. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do get what, exactly what you're saying. It, it is challenging because I think there's a lot of components to it. But with, say, Kickstarter, it, it, it seems like the initial vision and kind of ethos of the platform was let's, let's create an opportunity for people who couldn't get their products made under any other circumstances to throw it out there and see if people believe in it, if they want it, if they'll back it and, and support it. But the challenging part is where more and more larger companies have started to see the value in it as, as an easy way to market. What you've now got is some companies that by rights maybe shouldn't be using the platform because they really don't need to. Mm-hmm. And the problem is though, those those companies, you could argue that like they, they could make the product anyway, but because Kickstarter has become so effective as a sales platform, and there are so many people involved. Like, Come On Games is a great example. Um, I follow a lot of the board game design studios as well. And so many of them are really making no profit at all. Because by the time you've worked in, like, for example, with, um, with role-playing books, what we sell are only books. They're classified as books. So we don't have to pay any VAT and all kinds of fees. Shipping to the EU, shipping to the UK from America are largely forgotten or, or entirely forgotten because we're not shipping a game. It's a book. But once you get into board games, you get all kinds of extra taxes. The cost of shipping is astronomically high for the weight. 
Mm-hmm. And it does, it causes you to change the way you approach a lot of these things. So with role play books, backers don't seem as bothered about getting free delivery up front. They don't mind paying for it themselves or having it added later on because the cost of a book is much more homogenized than the cost of a box, which could have minis. Imagine you back a, a massive board game, right? And you initially back it for just flat token pogs. And then it upgrades to include minis and all kinds of extra things. Well, that's that's not actually that's not that common, right? Because normally they they provide the tog version or they like the the cardboard cutout or the the minis version. But what does happen is usually the mini versions now come with like a plus all stretch goals. So you originally yeah. backed for the core game with thirty characters, but it ends up with one hundred and ten. That is a lot of weight and a lot of shipping. But because backers are uncertain, the companies now pay it more often than not and fold it into their fees. And that's a heck of a thing to do. So there is an argument as you grow and grow and expand, um, it, it can be difficult to really guarantee at all that you're making the money on those on those stretch goals. And I, I have seen, and there has been a couple of instances of fairly high profile companies putting themselves to the wall. I, I couldn't name it off the top of my head, but I know there's companies that have folded specifically because they funded too well. Um, they promised too much and failed to deliver because there was so much involved. It's one of the things with Thunder of Thorn that we're trying to avoid. We do expand the adventure with stretch goals. Um, We've got some of them lined up that will add materials. But it goes back to what I said earlier on. We want the core book to be feature complete for GMs. So most of the expansions are now player primer, player level stuff, player option stuff. But they're smaller and shorter. They don't add a massive spectrum of life to the book. But what's going to happen for us is like, as we unlock those stretch goals, the book gets longer. But while we're PODing it, that means we make less and less and less money per unit. Now, we're already pretty tight because we're not a massively known company and we've been off the treadmill of being on Kickstarter for a long time. We've we've taken three years off the platform. We've improved enormously. We really have. You can look at the quality of the products now and it's it's night and day. But while we've got a good audience now on DriveThruRPG and our our Instagram following has grown and that's crossed over on the DriveThruRPG, we're not a known company. We're not a big company. So we've subsidized the heck out of our book going in. I mean, if you buy a fantasy flight game adventure um, for, say, Star Wars, they're like 32 quid for a 96 to 144-page adventures, and we're 24 quid for 128 going out of the gate. So we're like eight pounds cheaper for substantial, well, in the same spectrum of pages, really. But say yeah. we get up to 160-odd pages, which is the upper limits of what we'll do, well, we're still doing that POD. So the amount of money we get goes down and down and down and down. But we're already way cheaper than, say, Wizards of the Coast. But we're an independent company. So our costs are insanely higher, but yeah. our margins are insanely smaller. But it's because what we want to do with this product is get it out there. Get it out there so we can point to it now and go, let's get let's give away review copies. Let's get out co- give away copies, competition copies, get influencers to look at it. Because we want to be back in two or three months' time doing this again. But we want to have something out there that fans, reviewers, consumers, players, gamers, anyone can look at and go, so that's what they're capable of. That's what I can expect from Deep Dark Designs. And would we charge more next time round if there was an audience? Yes. But then we're kind of English apologists. We'll still be on the cheap side of the spectrum. <laughs> you know? And we, still, we don't believe in you know charging extra PDFs and bundling things in. Like We, we don't really ever want to be the money-grabbing company. But we're aware of the fact that we'll get we'll lose more and more money on the sales until we get to the realms of offset printing, and then it spikes back up and we do great. 
So the more the more sales we make, the worse we do. Until right. we make enough sales, and it gets a lot better. So, like with every Kickstarter, our pricing structure and the ways in which we make money and the spectrum we've got for doing that is very, very, very almost okay. It's the best we can do of economics and maths. You can never, you can never design the perfect pricing structure, but the the profits we expect to get are not huge, but they're livable. But like like you said earlier on about being almost like a pre-order system. We're at the point now with Fern the Thorn where we've bought all the art. We, we've actually got all of the art going into the book. So it's done. There's nothing more to pay for. So backing and supporting Thunder the Thorn is something people, I would hope, will do if they like the look of the project for two reasons. One, because they want the book, and that's how you get the book, is by buying and supporting and engaging. But two, because hopefully they want to you know, try and compensate us for our time and the blood, sweat, and tears that has gone into the book. But more than that, they want to get to the next one because that's what the industry has become now is the money from Thunder of the Thorn is what will pay for its, you know, the next book we develop. And the book for that, will, the money for that will develop the one after and the one after the one after. And most publishers maybe wouldn't acknowledge or admit that, but that is how it works for, for basically everyone now, um, more and more so. I think most companies are behind the scenes operating on that, that basis. Those that can, certainly. If you've got no money at all, to be able to pay for or cover anything, then, then yeah, Kickstarter gives you a platform to, to go out there and get things in. But you'll be better off if you've got a good amount of materials to show off your projects far along. Um, and like like with ours, if we make £2,000, which is our target, then we won't pay ourselves a penny um, for the you know couple of thousand hours of work we've put in at this point. Um, we wouldn't pay ourselves a penny if we made maybe three or four times that um, because of the cost of art, and the cost of, it's not just start for this project, but keeping the business afloat, paying for the things we need to pay for, and getting the next book and the book after the book after to market. But we'll have general sales for that book forevermore. If they release a sixth ed, we can update the book, reuse the art, reuse some of the materials. And, you know, it's no secret the role play companies that have been around for 15 years survive for the for 100. Because unlike video games with the graphics go out of date and yeah. you don't reuse them, <laughs> Well, those graphics will still be great in five to ten years' time. Just write new rules, you know, polish the adventure, re-release a better version of it. And that's what everyone's doing. You know, we see pretty much everyone in the industry right now who's got adventures from 10, 20 years ago, updating and re-releasing, and sometimes replacing the art, sometimes not. But we've got that as something we continue to sell and monetize and use moving forward. But for us, it is about getting something out there. And I think it's about understanding sunk costs is that you shouldn't kickstart to recoup every second you've ever spent in the book and everything you've ever invested into it if you're going to kickstart it for a value you're never going to get because then you're going to get nothing. What you should instead do is look at how much you can get to recoup what you need to move to the next project. And one of the biggest things about Kickstarter that people don't seem to understand is that it's momentum-driven. So, for example, there's a, there is a project that came out a long time ago um, called Worlds of atlas or atlas i think it was called and it was by a company that did um heroes of thornwall i believe it's called which was an amazingly successful i think it won a bunch of any awards and other awards a hugely popular adventure that was renowned as being phenomenal and i i think it's that company but i'm going back quite a long time here so i could be mistaken um but they released a, a string of kickstarters that were looking for like 10 20 pounds 
And so they got like 40, 50,000, I think like 70,000 every time. So then they released the Kickstarter looking for 40, 50, 60 grand and it completely flopped. And what people don't understand is if you need 20 or 30 grand to finish your Kickstarter, then you probably shouldn't kickstart it if you're a smaller company. Because if it doesn't look like it's going to fund after a day or two, everyone who sees it goes, oh, that looks like it won't fund. I'll check back later and maybe pledge then. And so nobody backs. So like, we're not, our goal with Thunderthorn, our target for it isn't £2,000. But last time we went in for £4,000 and we failed to fund. There's a lot of other reasons for that. We were quite unfortunate with our timing as one of them. We had a lot of drop pledges towards the end because a lot of great, a lot of great campaigns launched around then. A few of which I actually backed because they were very, <laughs> they were very tempting. But there was a lot of reasons for that. We were releasing four products at once. Our Kickstarter wasn't as strong as it should have been. I don't think we were far enough along. There were various issues for it. But this time around, we're like, look, if we want to get eight grand, that's a terrible reason to go and look for eight grand. If we want to get four grand, don't look for four grand. What's the minimal viable thing we can do here to get this project made, to get it out to people and finish it and complete it? And two grand will do that. With two grand, we'll get Thunder of Thorn fulfilled now to everyone under the sun. Now, we'd like to get a bit more than that because that's going to go towards the next project. But that seems to be the nature of Kickstarter to some degree. You absolutely can come in. One thing I like about Kickstarter, actually, which I really like, is if you're a nobody, like you've never done a Kickstarter before, and you've got a very small, very basic idea, the people who believe in it, Kickstarter, almost ideologically, almost the dreamers of you know those real enthusiastic supporters, will still turn out and support you. Mm-hmm. So if it's your first project and you haven't got good art, you haven't got a budget, you haven't got anything, you're still going to fund if you're reasonable in the scope of what you set out to achieve. And then if you're like, second third fourth fifth sixth kickstarter in that goodwill kind of vanishes to some degree if your project is kind of just um like overachieving and and it doesn't have any art it doesn't have anything to back it up then you won't do well but that's i think kind of what you'd hope is that the platform and the support is there for newer companies to get a foot on the ladder to give them a chance to prove they can make the product they can fulfill the expectations and they can succeed and if they do that, but they're unable to grow from that and they can't do anything past that point, then you can't expect people to keep supporting them. Um, and those who have got feature-rich, nearly complete projects, you, you can understand why people will back that and support that. So it is, as a, as, a, um, as a designer, as a developer, as a publisher, it's a very difficult line to walk as to where, where you should kickstart, when you should kickstart, what you should charge. Um, but there is a way to walk it, and that's what we're trying to do. And because the platform's new, we're only looking at a platform that wasn't really around 10 years ago. Everyone is still figuring this out. And that's why you get companies making these mistakes here and there. And you get things that I think sometimes seem much more anti-consumer than they are. And it's because companies don't know. They try one thing. And I've seen this where um, I've seen a lot of comments on Kickstarters where consumers are like, oh, you should have charged a lot more for this. I'd have paid a lot more. Oh, why aren't there more add-ons? Oh, you should have separated off and charged more for that. You should have you should, all these things were like space out your stretch goals more or all this advice for people like th- begging for ways to spend more money. Um, and, you you know, you've got to give people meaningful options at low pledge levels to high pledge levels because you don't want to exclude anyone unnecessarily. Um, right. But different people want different things out of the platform. 
And the more you can understand that as a publisher and as a, as a creator, the better off you'll be. And that's what we're trying to figure out this time round. And I, I definitely think we've done a better job of it than we have in the past. But I also know that we've got lessons to learn and we'll continue to improve. Um, and I'm sure that's as true of us as it is as, as of most of the companies that are out there. Yeah, well, you're continually falling forward as you, you know, try to implement new things. You try different, you know, different schemes. You know, you always take those lessons and move forward and apply them to the next next project, the next uh, the next big thing. Mm, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, you had mentioned uh, a little bit earlier as we were talking that you guys uh, also had a couple of, of classes out, the uh, the Soulbound and the Slayer. Now, I got, actually got a chance to play the Slayer uh, late oh, last year. We, we did a, a one little one shot thing while we were out on vacation, and I, it was it was a lot of fun to play. And and I think my perception might be skewed a little bit because I had like phenomenal rolls for the entire you know the three days that we played. So it made oh it's the best class ever. <laughs> uh, what, what were you guys looking at doing uh, when you sat down? Did you see? Uh, a hole that needed to be filled. You had like interesting ideas that came out of your, your home games. Like, Oh, you know, this character is so cool, but if he could do or she could do, you know, this or that, you know, and then did that sort of like, you know, foment this sort of uh, creative endeavor or. I think when we generally, when we set out to design classes, um, I like to think of a concept first, if I can. Um, but sometimes I sometimes think of a concept first and I bleed that into the mechanics. Sometimes I approach it the other way around. And the Soulbound is a good example. The Soulbound or other classes is a good example of one where I had a sort of thematic kind of role play idea first of this interesting idea for what, what the character would be like. The Slayer is the antonym to that. The Slayer was more this, this gameplay conceit I had where I was like, wouldn't it be really interesting if you had a momentum based class? where it's based around the core conceit of stringing together kills and damage into ever greater um, possibilities. So it, and then as a, a result of that, that momentum could be channeled more and more effectively. So straight away, it gets like on a kill, it gets extra actions, extra attacks, whatever. But then being able to start to move between that extra attack and to use it to make a ranged attack and to spend it in different ways for other types of synergies. But then also if you're moving for it to free up your battlefield navigation, and suddenly it became this, all of the themes bled together, but it all came from this one core play gameplay idea. It was like, a lot of the time when I design a class, I go, what's the third level ability? Nothing else matters, but what? If, because that's where like, say a barbarian rage, everything a barbarian gets is connected to that theme. That's the under thing that pin, the, the thing that pins everything else. Um, and every class has got, or a lot of the classes have something like that whether it's something like a wild shape or something like a spell casting, you know, set of spells so you get folded into your character, there's a hook that will define almost all else. And that's what it was with the Slayer. And then a lot of it came from there. So we realized, like, one thing about the Slayer is that it felt quite tactical to us, knowing when to, like, get the HP regen versus pushing ahead because you've got competing, you've got competing options at any given time. There's an right. opportunity cost that every class does. So then we were like, well, the extra mobility means you can move forward quite fast, but you're quite frail. So suddenly you're learning when to push the offense and push the defense of the retreat. So then we were kind of like, okay, we've got some, we've got a system here that's very tied to this whole risk reward mechanic. And so that extended out though also to making it more situational. So one thing about the Slayer 
that I do think some people will see as a criticism, like would offer up as a criticism, sorry, for like it being like an amateur, like a third party class, is that it's quite situational. So if you're battling lots of weak minion level enemies like kobolds, you're going to be killing one every round again, all of the extra attacks under the sun. And the Slayer is undoubtedly the highest performing class at the table, I would say, if you're battling lots of CR18 monsters at level one. It's probably going to outperform everyone else. But the problem is, as you get further in the game, you have got so many encounters where it's like enemies of your level or above your level um, or solo style encounters like bosses and stuff like that that GM is throwing your way or that are designed as... Because when you get stronger, you get more variety of enemies and you start to get like berserkers coming in that are like sacks of hit points or have ridiculously high AC... And suddenly, like, the Slayer's ability to drop one of them per round and get perks just isn't there at all. And suddenly, like, say you're battling, I don't know, Tiamat, if you get right to the very end of um, Rise of Tiamat from the Tyranny Dragons campaign line, and you've got, like, one specific... Actually, that's a bad example, actually, because Tiamat, you've got different heads and you've got other adversaries. Say you've got one Demon Lord from Out of the Abyss or something, you're one big boss at the end. Yeah, the Slayer's going to be dead weight in your party. It's not that strong. But, again, this, one of the great things about the Slayer is that it, if you look at the overwhelming number of encounters, I mean, we took the Slayer and we read through, like, pretty much all the D&D adventures to that point, and we just read through encounter after encounter after encounter, and we built charts and tables of, like, using the guideline adventures, how often is the Slayer going to overperform? How often is it going to underperform? We then built out when we were designing it... Um, we actually keep, it's one of the, the great ways to design a character, is when you design a feature and then another feature and then another feature, and you look at them one at a time and try and balance them, it's almost impossible to realize how strong they are in relation to each other. And that's how you get third-party classes where you read them and you're like, it sounds okay, and then you build it and you cannot play it because um, mm. it doesn't stack out at the table. So what we've done and how we approach our class design is we've basically built every D&D class um, with almost every subclass, level 1 to 20, as a badly optimized, reasonable, and heavily optimized build set based on standard array. So when we want to know exactly how strong a level 16 slayer of the Hexblade subtype is as a dwarven barbarian, uh, sorry, as a dwarf, we then look at it and we weigh up how effective is the slayer as a dwarf versus a barbarian as a dwarf, and they're both front-like combatants, and we compare them like for like. What options do they have round by round? What resources? When do the resources regain? And we extrapolate from that a pretty good spectrum. And I will say this for the Slayer. There are perfectly valid criticisms of that class, um, same as the Soulbound, same as everything, but it is one of the most balanced classes anywhere for 5th edition, including some of the official classes. Um, <laughs> it's very good. Um, I, I'm very... I wouldn't say apologetic, but I'm honest about uh, about the criticisms of our stuff. A lot of stuff we do is still stuff we're learning on. The Slayer is phenomenal for its balancing. It's very, very good. Um, yeah, it's not I, perfect. I was going to say good. I enjoyed it a ton. Right, that's the awesome feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, I, and the dice obviously brought you some good luck. So that's yeah, something for sure. else as well. Well, I guess I don't know. I don't know at the time. I mean, as we're talking about it, it kind of uh, you know strikes me as as fourth edition esque, right? And I don't know that I that I felt that at the time we were playing it, but I but I enjoyed that risk that risk reward. You know, it's like do you run in because you kind of want to play him, 
as a frontline tank, but they've only got the you know proficiency for a light armor. But you can do a lot of damage like a striker. So you're like, where do you sort of fit in with the party, and who else are you playing with? Um, you know, and like you say, it's super powerful at, at the lower level encounters. But then maybe at those mid and higher level encounters, he's the guy that runs in and you know, quote unquote, steals the kills. You know, it's like, all right, focus fire on this guy, and then you run in behind him. You know, dice him up, and then move on to the next guy. You know, like there's. It, it all becomes about how, what your play style is and, and, you know, how does it work with the party and, and all that kind of stuff. I think we played them at – I think we ran at fifth level. And, oh, um, wow. I, you know, we just, you know, built them straight out to, to fifth because we were doing, yeah. you know, just a couple of nights. And and it, and it had a lot of good options. Like I said, it was a lot of fun. And it, and it did feel really well balanced depending on how much you wanted to sort of push and pull and, you know. I think, I think the other thing as well is is – Certainly, if I'm GMing, and I would hope that the majority of gyms out there are having some kind of oversight on what the players are bringing to the table. So they're not just saying, like, grab any, like, homebrew thing you've built yourself or whatever and, and, and throw it into the game. Because there needs to be some balancing. And a lot of GMs, I imagine, would kind of balance encounters to make sure that if the Slayer excels in one role and one type of encounter, they don't exclusively throw... Like, if you were playing, like, a first-level party... As a GM, you went to build an adventure, which is just CR one eighth cobalt after cobalt after cobalt. Then the Slayer will outperform everyone else. However, if you're playing an official adventure, and a, you know, a lot of the third party ones are adventures which have got more of a spectrum, there are battles where the Slayer will outperform, and ones where it won't. Ones where it will, it's not. It's not going to steal every kill in every battle, and it's not going to never get a kill ever. It's, it's balanced in a spectrum. It's not absurd either end. But it's definitely the case that like a GM who wants to build around that can account for it for doing homebrew. And you should be pretty safe with anything published. Like, because every published adventure I've played has a good mixture of high AC, high HP, more solo or small level encounters against, you know, these like run in and stomp through things and cast the bloody swore through a uh, like the fourth end minions. <laughs> but you've you've made a great point there though about the kill stealing thing. So like I said, I'm fair about things. I try to be objective as I can. And that is one area where I could see some people having a, a dislike of the Slayer for a specific reason. It's because the class works a lot on kills. The Slayer does absolutely encourage you to kill still as much as possible. So if you want to land the landing blow whenever you can, you actually want to talk to people in your party about like, hey, once the enemy's taken a lot of blows, do you want to leave it and let me fire that and focus that down? Now, some people won't like that, especially I imagine if you're playing like D&D Adventurers League or something like that, where where like yeah. you're playing with a bunch of strangers and everybody's sort of like they don't know each other and you want your opportunity to shine. But of course, it's never going to be allowed in Adventurers League because it's a third party, you know, a third party class, whatever. But if you're right. playing with people who are quite competitive, then yes, some groups won't like it for that reason. Funny enough, with my group, I've never played in a group that doesn't get that like if your party is more efficient, then your character is not going to die. So our groups would always love that. But so there mm -hmm. are reasons why it won't appeal to every player or every group or every GM. But it goes back to what I said earlier on. As a third-party developer, we cannot and should not try and develop rules that are the safest, most middle-of-the-road and designed to appeal to everyone. What I can say is the Slayer's balanced. What I can't say is that somebody will enjoy it. 
And as a designer, I'm pretty happy with that compromise. Um, right. <laughs> that seems like a good step to aim for to me. Right. Well, and, and uh, you know, at some point that becomes incumbent upon the GM, like you were saying, you have to kind of know, you know, what your what your characters, your players are bringing to the table character-wise. I think a session zero is so important. Um, and, and we never used to do that, but but since starting the podcast, we've I've been a pretty big proponent of that. Like, you know, A, what do you want out of the game? Like, are we just dicking around having a good time? Are there certain themes we want to explore? Is there certain, you know, you've never gotten to play a cleric before? Did you want to, you know, play a cleric? Okay, cool. We could build a party around that. Um, and then to, to sort of balance, you know, those character options out, you know, if, you know, even if you're running, uh, you know, an in-book adventure and they're fighting all kobolds and the, you know, the slayer is going to take them out. Well, maybe one of those kobolds, instead of having a short sword or a spear, he's got a net. You know, yep. I mean, that, that that sort of becomes incumbent upon the GM to sort of like then maneuver within the system. Or maybe, you know, half of them aren't kobolds, maybe they're goblins or something, you know, something different that then can counteract that to a certain extent and not take the fun away from the rest of the party. But, you know, it gives you the opportunity to balance that. I had that in the fourth game. Uh, my my buddy's kid was playing a paladin at, at low levels with, like, you know, an AC of 21. And I'm like, this fucking sucks because I can't put something in there that's going to hit him really. So yeah, then I yeah. started bringing in things that attacked reflex, that attacked, you know, constitution, that, that did other things that allowed me to challenge him as a player and yeah. then make that more fun because – you know, it's cool to like make it through an encounter. You don't get hit and like you win and it's whatever, but they have to like manage those resources and, and have, there always has to be some kind of tension because if yeah. it's just, Oh, we win, then how, then it's not fun. Is it? I mean, it's not fun for me for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so think I, so. Yeah. I, I mean, e- even going back to what you were saying with, you know, we haven't had a TPK in a while or a legit TPK. Yeah. There always has to be the threat of that even if you don't follow through you know the dice are what the dice are but you know maybe somebody gets knocked out maybe it wasn't a killing blow maybe it was you know whatever um but there always has to be some tension of you know are we going to make it through this i mean we played last night Uh, my buddy jesse runs the monster hunt podcast and um you know he we fought some uh like uh one-eighth cr stuff and then we moved on they were kruthics i think and then we moved on to like an adult kruthic and then, you know, we continued going on and then he dropped like a level C, uh, it was a, a CL5 and I'm like, or CR5. I'm like, what the fuck? He was like, I didn't think you guys were going to survive that. I'm like, players don't run away, man. Like, what, yeah. what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, it needs, um, I think, especially with D&D, where there is the, uh, the assumption that if you're going to face something, it's reasonably level appropriate. I think you you need to be prepared to telegraph it pretty heavily if that's not the expectation. Yeah. Um, but I think I think with something like the Slayer, it's like if you're a GM and you want to maintain a balanced game and that's important to you and you don't want things to be completely broken, then I would assume that you'd be vetting, you know, classes before you're saying to players go and find anything you want online. Because I mean, I, I've read a couple of hundred classes in my life, and you know, some of them are great, but there's a lot of them that that are so broken you can't imagine how it was designed almost that there is stuff like that out there yeah and so like if you if playing a balanced game was important to you and making it work was important to you as a gm you'd want to veto it and check it out but if you're checking it out then you might you well you're likely then to also think okay this is either going to be 
not suitable for my campaign because it's too effective against minions. So I'll let like CR like one eighth and really weak mobs, and that's what my whole campaign is get based around. Or you're going to flip that and be like, this is perfect. And if it's not for your campaign, then you either need to go, okay, I'll adjust things, or I won't. Um, and it's funny because it's interesting from a design point standpoint to talk about that quite a lot. But I think by fixating on it, I make it sound like it's more unbalanced than it is. I mean, <laughs> obviously you've played it. But one of the things I, I've used as a metric, specifically the Slayer, actually, I haven't with the Soulbound, but with the Slayer, is if I've got new players playing the game and I'm sitting down with them and we're, we're playing a couple of sessions, whatever, I'll ask them, what do you want to play? What class, what race? I'll build it for you. Rather than getting brand new players to sit there for the whole process of character creation, I'll give you a bunch of options. We'll run through it and I'll go away and build it for you. And I've offered the Slayer to people blind so they don't know it's not an official right uh, official class and the metric for me is at the end going right one of these isn't real can you figure out which one it is hmm. and i haven't yet to be fair i haven't played it with enough of what i would call a really great representative sample but what i haven't found is people singling out the slayer and going that one was broken that one was unbalanced um it, it works it works well um but again that's uh Part of that is the version of Slayer you've played as well is the second edition. We we sat on it a couple of months, went back and polished it up a lot more, and after a lot more playtesting, a lot more internal consideration. And when you write or design something, I think as well, when you when you first do it, you're too close to it. You need to get it out there and let it sit for sometimes a couple of weeks or months, and then reapproach it with fresh eyes. And we did improve the Slayer an awful lot. Um, and now I got to say we're we're very happy with it. We think it's a great class option. Um, the Soulbound, I'm less sure of because it's newer and it's much more experimental um the soulbound i i don't know if you've seen the soulbound or not have, I, have you come across uh, the soulbound i think i looked at what was on the drive through i don't i don't think i uh, i picked that one up yeah yeah so the soulbound is is um probably one of the most if not the most experimental class in fifth edition it's like we, we designed a class. The concept there was very, very different. We wanted to make something really strange and weird from a law standpoint. So we tried to design a class where um, you get a handful of basic class features, and that's it. And then you get two subtypes to pick. And each of them are equally large, and they make up about 75% um, of the class is the two subtypes. So D&D does something that I would call front-loading and back-loading. So if you pick a class in D&D... 66% of the class, say, is spent on the core class features and only 33% of the subclass. So if you imagine like a class as a point system, like buying points, there's like 60 points in the main class and 40 spent on the backside. And we wanted to do something a bit different and flip it around and put more on the back end of the characters. Part of the reason for that is if I ever design an alternative to 5th Ed within the constraints of 5th Ed, it's how I'd build the game. It's actually my biggest problem with fifth ed as a game designer player is that all of the complexity once you've built a character you're just leveling up you don't really make that many decisions as you go along you kind of level up you pick something at say third level if it's a specialization and you pick spell choices or feats and that's about it and feats are separate to class anyway right so there's not that many meaningful decisions you need to make um but part of the issue is so you, you spend a lot of time at class at character creation looking at lots and lots of options then and you're willing to because that's when you spend the time doing it. Like Pathfinder, you spend ages of character creation looking at thousands of options, um, unless you cut down to just the core book even. And even then, it's hundreds of options. 
but you don't mind because getting excited for your character and charting out their journey for 20 levels is actually quite a lot of fun and quite interesting. You want meaningful options there without them becoming constantly coming up throughout the game and you know, providing a blockage. So I don't think in D&D you necessarily want to pick from 20 things at second level, at third, at third, at fourth, etc. You don't want it to be huge. But I kind of feel like you want more meaningful options at first level. But one thing I have found a little bit myself, and I've had a lot of players say, have played through like four or five or six campaigns in fifth ed, is one type of barbarian is very similar to another type. The subclasses in D&D fifth ed don't actually do very much because they're quite small. Some do more than others. That's definitely the case. And a class isn't just as an amalgamation, it's features, it's personality, there's a lot of other things as well. But there is a point at which if you've played two or three barbarians, it's a lot harder to get excited for barbarian four. But if they flipped it, right, and you distilled core classes down to more like a third of the total and subclasses doing a little bit more of the equation, you wouldn't have a lot more to look at during character character creation because you'd still have the same number of points to spend the same number of abilities to gain over the course of the game. Yes, there'd be a few more at the beginning, but not a lot more. But you'd have classes that are much more disparate within the same class. So you could have four or five or six barbarians that are very, very different instead of six barbarians that are only a little bit different. But you wouldn't have any more choices as you level and you wouldn't have a lot more going into it. So it's one of the things that, like, if we ever did, like, a full game conversion, like like a pathfinderization of fifth ed or like Lord of the Rings have done with adventures in middle earth, where they've kind of gone back and reinvented the core classes. That would be the number one thing I would do. I would reinvent all of the classes. Shit. There's like three or four barbarians, but they're much more disparate. There's three or four fighters, but they're much more disparate. And the soul band was our attempt to do something similar to that, where like most of the classes on the back end and you're picking two classes at once, two back ends, and then they augment each other in very strange ways. Um, it's quite fascinating to see because, like, the way you're, you've got, like, a weapon that manifests, but the nature of the weapon is one component, component of it. Is it a fey weapon? Is it another worldly, like, Lovecraftian weapon? Is it something else entirely? And is it, like, um, a two-handed weapon? Is it, like, a body mod? So, for example, that you might get a body modification, which is more like... If you take like the angelic one as one of the natures, take an angelic one, combine it with the body watch, you turn into like an angel, you grow larger over time, become like a Deva-style demigod giant. Uh, whereas if you pick the two-handed weapon, your limbs might form together and turn into like a slick ooze because it's otherworldly. But what we do is we make the players define the weapon and the nature of it, whether it's armor, weapon, whatever. You define how it looks and functions. And all we do is for gameplay purposes, we tell you how many limbs it occupies you can't like break the game and exploit sure sure but it could be that like your arm turns into something or something forms out of your hand or your hand has to hold something so we limit we're very careful with what we limit and then we say this manifestation is based on like lovecraftian outsider oozy horror and it's a two-handed weapon you design whatever you want in your own head and like so some of the players i've run that with have been like because they've got the the infernal diablo style flaming one their entire bodies eventually become wreathed in fire versus just flame tattoos licking at their arms. They put their stamp on it, and then we prepare these two halves of the equation, and we we provide some smart crossover. So a lot of the um, a lot of the origins provide certain things like certain types of damage resistances and damage vulnerabilities. 
but you get kind of an origin damage type so if you're like linked to the to, to fire to, to flame to demons you get like a fiery one and then your that's from your origin but your core class the different types of weapons will have special abilities that use your origin type damage so what we've got is two separate systems but they're designed to cross over and intersect but only in very smart ways so they don't imbalance the game too much so you end up building one of 25 permutations and then deciding what that permutation means to you and i'm i'm pretty much adamant that it's the most complicated advance in fifth, advanced uh, the most the most unusual class in fifth edition and probably the most ambitious whether that's a good thing or not is for people who've played it to tell me because i because it's um it's definitely a huge challenge building one you've got a lot more to think about and consider the more classes and you probably want to read the subtypes end to end to give a lot of thought as to what you want to marriage up together right. and i could see probably a lot of players going this isn't for me but cool uh, for those is, who play it interesting yeah well as i said the cool thing is then you have a lot of ability to um not not so much optimize although i guess optimize but certainly customize and then every every soul balance plate is necessarily going to be different than another one like you you know you keep referencing barbarians which is kind of funny for me because uh my buddy kurt was going to run a, a short campaign and i was like i've never played a barbarian i want to do that and then i looked at the options and i'm like i don't want to play someone else's barbarian like how can i flip this on its head and play something that's more interesting you know maybe not necessarily nerfed right because you're going to get your rages and whatever but, but something that kind of flips it on its head a little bit and is not the typical x you know whether it's a barbarian a cleric or something else um and, and you know that that sounds like that's perfect for this class because it gives you the ability and and really forces you to make those decisions then especially with a good gm yeah definitely yeah i think though as much as I've just kind of like offered up a criticism, if you said, I also, by the same token, would say that's one of its strengths. Because one thing that I find is when I play Pathfinder, it actually, to be fair with Pathfinder, because we played so much, we are very good at adapting rules and on the fly and stuff like that. But one of the things I have found a lot and experienced and heard from a lot of people at Fifth Ed is the rules frame, excuse me, framework is light enough that you can project what you want onto it. If you don't like your class, say a sub, say a subclass in this is like, say with a lot of them, it's like two abilities at third level, then maybe it's something 10th or 14th, right? It's four or five abilities. Of those, one or two are pretty cookie-cut ribbons. So they're not super mechanical. It's actually incredibly easy as a GM to go to your player, okay, you don't like any options. What would you like us to build? Let's build something custom and bespoke for this campaign. And I think fifth ed straightforwardness allows people to feel empowered to play with the rules. So it's kind of funny. I think sometimes I criticize things. I especially criticize things I love actually quite a bit, but I'll criticize something that I do think is also a strength. And that is something that I, I, I think is a problem if you don't adapt the system heavily and you play the game a lot. I do think in fifth ed, it's very, someone like me, for example, I tend to GM, I don't play a lot. But when I do play, there's a couple of characters I'm really drawn to. And I play a lot of barbarians. I play a few <laughs> fighters and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm a, a barbarian junkie because I've got a couple of cool characters that I really enjoy playing. And I never get to play long enough to actually exercise it from my system. Like, I'll play, I, I've got a half-orc character called Jakara Glob that I have now played in several Pathfinder campaigns, a bunch of D&D campaigns. I've shoehorned 
because I get to play him for like two or three sessions, but super <laughs> into him, and then we stop. So everyone's like, you know, a year later, what do you want to play, Dan? It's like, oh, I'll play Jakar again. I'm going straight back to that one because <laughs> I've not finished the story. So he's become like my hero of the multiverse. So every every campaign, he just crops back up and we play him again because I've never fully fleshed it out. But I think if you're someone who, say you play D&D Fifth Ed and you really like frontline fighters in general, well, you've got a fighter, you've got a barbarian, and you've maybe got a paladin as well. And then you've got ones that maybe they're a little bit less tanky, like the rogue, like the monk. But it means that that's five classes right there, right? You've probably got a good four or five, maybe the warlock, you know, there's, there's a few in there, maybe a cleric with some of the melee builds. But you've got at least three or four, say three casters who just aren't going to appeal. And then you've got maybe three or four or five classes that are only going to semi, semi-appeal to you. Well, how many campaigns is it going to take for you to get bored then? When... The subtypes are quite samey. Yeah. And I do think, I think, I don't necessarily think it's a failure for Thed because I don't think it's a coincidence so successful. And yet it's also been a lot simpler than, say, the number of options in Four Thed and the number of options in, say, Pathfinder. The simplification of the system and the move back towards the abstraction. I think also the lack of balancing has helped. Like, I'm, you know, they, they overbalance things, I think, sometimes in Four Thed to a fault almost. And I think with fifth ed, they balance them and then they break them a little bit. I think, I think a combination of those little factors will help. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing that, uh, that fifth ed isn't overly complicated. But then I also think as a third party company, we should try and be a little bit different to fifth ed. Follow them where we're supporting the system and its theme and its ethos, but then find nooks and crannies where it feels right to deviate and, and bring something new to the table. Yep, that's awesome. And, and, and that's a good design philosophy, I think, right? Because it gives people other options to, you know, kind of look at things from a different angle and say, you know, that is really cool. And then maybe it, it uh, provokes someone to, you know, to maybe try to design something at home or or take a look at a core class and, you know, start pulling bits and pieces out and, you know, like, hey, I think, you know, for my game, you know, for our home game, let's, let's, you know, give this fighter this weird monk ability or whatever. Like, I don't know. Mm. I mean, it just, you know, it, it's, it becomes a thought experiment then for people to, uh, you know, to kind of pull things apart. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we should, we should probably get to our giveaway here. I think we're pushing like three hours here or something. Wow. <laughs> All right. So we have the, the legendary adventures, uh, harrowing heights here. So we're going to give this away. I pulled the the winners here. So uh, I guess we'll do first and last name. I don't know what's going to matter for anybody. Uh, Timothy Kun. Sorry if I butchered your last name. He is our first prize winner. He's going to get the hard physical copy of this book. And our second winner is going to get a PDF copy. It's Jesse P. Uh, he's our secondary winner. So uh, I'll be contacting you guys both, and uh, we'll get stuff out to you. And congratulations, and thanks for participating. Cool. Yeah, congratulations, guys. Well done. That's awesome. Let's tweet that out. We'll do that with thing. I should probably edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess we should probably wrap up, right? I, you know, I keep you here for the rest of the night. I don't know how much, how long of a podcast people want to listen to, but definitely thanks for coming on. Good luck with the with the current Kickstarter. I've got the page open. I've been watching the numbers climb as we're uh, as we're sitting here talking. So that's awesome to see. Yeah, it's getting there. Getting there. Very happy. <laughs> 
Cool. And then, I guess the, as a last thing, I, I mean, obviously you guys have things in the work. Is there anything that uh, you want to loosely touch on as, as uh, projects moving forward or anything we should expect to see uh, in the coming months aside from the uh, successful um, completion of Thunder of Thorn and getting that out in the world? Yeah, we've got um, we've got a couple of other projects we're looking at doing this year. Um, some of them are a little bit smaller. Some of them will be probably a little bit larger in scope and scale than uh, than Thunder of Thorn, even believe it or not. Um, one of the things we are doing in the near future, one of the smaller ones, is something that I think will tie in really nicely with the next Dungeons and Dragons official release. So they're doing a, an upcoming adventure in a couple of months, and I think something we've got will be a really nice um, addition to that. Uh, in the same way that probably, uh, you know, we we mentioned earlier on that, that uh, Harrowing Heights was a very nice addition to um, uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, giving you a lot more options to things that related to that. We've uh, we've got something which is which is more coastal, but like an NPC gallery, and we'll we'll add some more expanded rules to that as well. But I could see that being really nice to augment some of the characters' the adventure and, and change and tweak things. So that's that's going to be a smaller product. Um, but it's it's going to be quite timely, I think, and quite nice for us to get that one out there. Um, the other one, because I've touched on it already a little bit, which is a little bit further out, we've probably got a couple of projects between now and then, is we mentioned uh, revisiting Beginner Baubles. One of the things with that Beginner Baubles line is you've probably seen going through them, there is a lot of art in that, that series. It's, a couple, it's about 200 plus um, item illustrations alone. I think it's about 45 or 50 landscape environments as well. So we've got enough to do like a nearly a 300 page book with our every single page. Um, and what we'd like to do is throw that back out to a bigger audience. So one thing we are going to do is we're going to re-release Beginner Baubles as a single collected magic item book. So like 250, maybe 300 pages, maybe a little over that um, with everything in physical print, big fat hardback book. Um, and there haven't been a lot of really great magic item books out for fifth ed so hopefully we can get to the point of maybe offset printing that one because it is a much bigger project and we've got quite a few between now and then and giving that you know the the, the kind of print quality it deserves because the artwork in that is is phenomenal i urge anyone who hasn't seen any of them to go check some out um one of the things through this kickstarter we're doing is we're actually taking all of our existing projects and products because a lot of people haven't come across us before and this is really hopefully the first time some people are discovering us well, we're, we're marking a load of them down and we're selling them through this Kickstarter as well. So we've got two pledges, everything Deep Dark Physical and everything Deep Dark Digital. And I think there are 30 and 40% discount. Um, the discount in the physical books is is a little bit smaller. It's 30% because obviously the, the printing costs are astronomically high. I think we'll break even on sales of that practically. Um, the digital is, is 40% off on everything, all of our back catalogue. But people can go through and get big markdowns and just buy everything we've released. But if you get a chance to, even the individual beginner baubles are very, very cheap. The artwork in there is phenomenal. And we really want to give them another shake, get them out to a bigger audience and give them the print quality they deserve. So we're going to redo them, but we're going to reinvent them. It's going to be beginner baubles reimagined. So this time they're just going to be magic items. So the common, uncommon, legendary, rare, very rare. We're going to take them more in line with what you've seen elsewhere with D&D core already. But what we're going to do is we're going to use the ideas from the beginner verbal version as the basis. So the items will do similar things. They're just brought out now more in line with traditional power structures and, and balanced to the core game. But that should be a, like probably the biggest thing we've done to date by a wide margin, I'd say. Cool. Much, much higher aspiration than, a, than even Thunder of the Thorn. 
but I think that that might be next year that one because we've got quite a few more little projects we want to do between now and then. Cool. That sounds very cool. Magic Island long, is always a lot of fun. <laughs> long term, um, we have got a couple of uh, completely original role playing games that we're we're playtesting internally now, and we're trying to decide which one to carry forward to a launch. Um, but our, our attitude with that one is is we want to be a bigger, more established company to do it. When we launch a core book, it's got good production values and it's it's something worth acquiring and we can take the time to play test it properly. Um, so instead of it being a side project, elevating it to a main project. And when um when we come to do that, I will uh, I will see if you want to come give us a shake on that one and come join us for a couple of sessions maybe. Definitely, definitely. I'm always down to play more games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. It's the bane of my existence anymore. <laughs> oh, what you're playing? Something? Yeah, hold on. Let me see. I'm I'm free on Friday. <laughs> uh, I played two games this week, none of which were for my own podcast. So, <laughs> wow, that's yeah, I've um, I've just got on a. Uh, I'm really into beginner boxes at the moment, partly because the back of my mind is the idea of releasing this to ourselves in a couple of years. But I always like a beginner box, self-contained, because what I find with a beginner box is it's the publisher showing you what they think is the best thing about their system, like. The pre-gens extol what a, pre, what a character should be in their game, the kind of themes, the adventures designed to show off the idea and the materials. So I've just, I've, I'm going to pre-order or order when it comes out the Starfinder beginner box because that's the car. I've just got Legends of the Five Rings, the new version. Mm. I've just bought the Star Trek 2D20 um, game, and I'm waiting to get the Warhammer, um, the newest edition of Warhammer uh, Fantasy Roleplay. Um, or for, um beginner box as well but the place i get from is just right out of stock and that so i've got these an increasing pile of beginner boxes <laughs> of boxes that i just haven't had the time to get through yet and i've got a list of players as long as my arm signed up to get involved so <laughs> I, I know the struggle all too well <laughs> yeah well it sucks man you know everybody's got stuff going on they're working you got kids and your you know spouse and you know everybody's got stuff going on it's, it's so hard to to carve out you know a three-hour chunk you know, every week, every other week. I mean, most of the games we do, we run once a month because it's just so hard to get everybody together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But that's what makes it special, right? I mean, if you could play every day, I mean, that's cool for a while. And then, then it's like, eh, eh, I mean, you know, whatever. When when you get to do it once a month or you get to do it, you know, once every other week, like it it keeps that shine on it because it's, it's something, you know, you're devoting this amount of time to and you're blocking out, you know, a portion where you're not going to, be watching TV or, or, you know, doing any other thing. You're sitting down to enjoy, you know, this time with your friends. And I, you know, I, that, that's what I enjoy about it so much. I mean, playing games is cool and it's fun. It's whatever, but like, you know, hanging out like this is just, it, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think um, that kind of atmosphere, especially when people have to make the effort to travel to get there and, and then they do focus on the game and it's kind of becomes the highlight or the hype or whatever. But I also, there is something to be said about running at a game really hard. <laughs> I remember um, a couple of years ago, I was GMing uh, Pathfinder's uh, Reign of Winter Adventure Path for a group. And we were very fortunate that we, um, it was before myself and my brother went traveling for uh, about six or seven months. I hit the road and just traveled. And uh, it was just in the run up to that before we went. So we, we'd, we'd left all our jobs, put aside our savings, whatever. And we had about a month set aside before we left. So the pair of us, I had another friend who was working part-time, and the three of us just role-played for about eight to ten hours a day for about a month straight. 
Wow. Um, with me using every available waking hour to prep. <laughs> so I was just immersed in it for close to 16 hours a day. And do you know what? There is something to be said for that as well, because that's a whole other whole other experience. We did do um either last year or the year before, we've got a four-day weekend uh, that rolls around um, in April in the UK. And for the last bunch of years, every year that's been our role-play weekend. So we'll get a bunch of us together, grab a tent, pitch up in the garden, and game for a solid four days. Nice. I remember the year Curse of Strahd came out, I said I'd run that for a group, and we got oversubscribed. I normally run smaller groups. I like running with two or three players. I'm okay with four or five, but I like two or three. Really intimate small groups, really role-play heavy. We ended up with nine of us, nine players and myself. And we role-played Friday. Uh, we character-created at the table with, with multiple GMs and multiple PHBs. We lost half a day there. We role-played the whole of Friday, all of Sunday, and over half of Monday. So I role-played for, like, I GM for, like, six, with, like, nine people. And I don't think I've ever been so my face. I remember saying, never again. <laughs> <laughs> but I would. <laughs> yeah that's that's a lot of people it's, it's a beautiful hobby yeah oh so much fun yeah for sure cool all right well on that note i guess we'll go ahead i was just gonna say yeah it's just one of it really is yeah all right so i guess we'll we'll wrap this up here I uh, want to encourage everybody to go out and check out Thunder of the Thorn on Kickstarter. There's links in the show notes. Uh, there's also links to the to the main site for Deep Dark Designs. You can find their stuff over at uh, Drive Through RPG. Uh, I hope you'll take a moment to check out our sponsors as well. Uh, we have Birds of a Feather Coffee doing the Legendary Brew. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. If you use code Legends10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Uh, the Legendary Brew is a medium roast. It's a nice. Uh, Nice, uh, you know, mid-blend. It's, it's, you know, a little bit more caffeine in it than the uh, Night Owl, which you can also find over there as well, which is also very good. Uh, our other sponsor is Thing 12 Games. Check them out as well. Uh, again, you if you use code LEGENDS10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Uh, they're an independent, you know, game design company. Uh, they do smaller, lighter fare, a little bit, you know, lighter games. Uh, but they have some super cool stuff over there. Seals of Cthulhu should be coming out soon-ish. One of the Kickstarters I've been waiting for for a while. <laughs> uh, with their Dice of Series, Dice of Pirates and Dice of Crowns is awesome. Uh, you know, stick it in a pocket. You know, you can play it anywhere. Uh, we play games like that, you know, out at the bar, or, you know, waiting in line and stuff. Um, they also have Click, Click, Boom, which is a social deduction game where it's essentially Russian roulette with fuzzy woodland animals. It works. It's pretty cool. So we hope you'll check that out as well. And thanks again to Dan for coming on and, and talking about games and, and uh, you know, talking about Thunder to Thorn. It was a lot of fun. I'm, we need to do this more often. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, no response. He hates it. <laughs> uh, I think I, I said, yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, sure you did, sure you did. <laughs> cool. All right, well, I want to thank everybody for checking it out, and uh, we'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com. That's your cue. Oh, I'm sorry. I forget what the intro was you had to do last time.